and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It is our slightly belated top 10 games of 2022 list. We're already about a 12th of the way through 2023, but that's not stopping us. We have done this every year for like 10 years. We're not stopping now. We got to do a top 10 of the best games of 2022. So here you go. A little late. Not our latest, though. There was the year I went to Japan and we weren't able to do it until like late February. Uh, and that was mm-hmm. the year Sekiro was our game of the year. Um and you know what? There might be a similarity on this year's list. You'll see. Uh, but yeah, you excited to count down the games of the year, Sean? Yeah, and I, I actually like doing this a little bit later. Like it, it means that there's it means that I was able to play ten things that people would generally categorize as video games that released in this year. <laughs> uh, because if it were not for that extra month, I 100% would have had one thing on this list that would have been a game that I only experienced by watching somebody else play it online. Because uh, I did not play a lot of video games that came out this year. I played a lot of video games this year. Uh, you know, I played through most of the Resident Evil games. I played through all the Half-Life games. Uh, I replayed God of War 1, or like the God of War 2018. I replayed Horizon Zero Dawn. I played a lot of fucking video games, just most of them didn't come out in 2022. Yeah, I did play a lot of 2022 games. So I have my 10, I have 6 honorable mentions, and I have 1 outside category thing. Uh, so there was a lot for me to decide, and I was still kind of mulling it over today. This was a this was a pretty good year. There was a lot of stuff that I'm excited to talk about on today's list. Uh, but before we get to that, a um, couple pieces of stuff. I first off, Sean, I just have to talk about a new TV show that's out right now and recommend it to okay. people. And it is uh, Poker Face, which is airing on Peacock. Which is sad because that means no one will see it. Um, uh-huh. But you know, you can go sail the high seas. You can find it uh, <laughs> or support the official release. Um, but this is the new show created by Ryan Johnson, um, probably best known for directing things like Looper, Knives Out, Glass Onion, and that little Star Wars film that caused a crisis, uh, The Last Jedi. And this is his uh, first attempt at TV. It stars Natasha Leone, who you would know from things like Russian Doll, uh, Orange is the New Black. And it is. I, I have to recommend it, Sean, specifically to you because it is so up your fucking alley. You've got to watch mm-hmm. this show um, because it is basically Columbo meets Kung Fu, which is to say it's Columbo in the sense that it is a sort of anthological episode of the week thing where um, it is an inverted detective format. So instead of it being a whodunit, it is you see the crime being committed at the beginning and then you come in with the detective in this case Natasha Leone and the fun is how does the detective put it together how are they going to nail the person who did it uh, mm-hmm. not who did it and that is kind of the thing Columbo is is famous for popularizing and then it is like Kung Fu or the Incredible Hulk you could go with that too the, the TV series Incredible Hulk right. where you have someone going from town to town righting wrongs because Natasha Leone is on the road uh, the first episode is this episode about her uh, in Las Vegas, working at a casino, and uh, something goes wrong with Adrian Brody's character, who is there, uh, and now she is on the run from Adrian Brody's hitman, played by Benjamin Bratt, and that is sort of the impetus, but it is, don't let that fool you, it is extremely episodic, every episode starts with like uh, 15 to 20 minutes just about the location you're going to be in, the characters, who the guest stars are, their lives, and then Natasha Leone comes in, you find out how she's related to the mystery, uh, and see her nail them, and it is uh, pure fucking crack I want in my veins. It is so good. This is the kind of TV that just does not get made at all anywhere anymore. Uh, and it is great. It is like the first instance I know of of a major movie auteur coming to TV 
wanting to make TV, like wanting to make mm-hmm. like this is televisual ass television. I guess you would say that of David Lynch about like Twin Peaks to a certain extent, but Twin Peaks was still fairly different from what was on TV in the nineties. Um, but this is you know true case of the week. Every episode is close ended. And they are all fantastic. Every location is so cool to, like, whatever local milieu they kind of play with. I love meeting all of the different guest stars and characters. You've got Chloe Sevigny is in the fourth episode. You've got um, Lil Ray Howery as one of the main characters in the third. You've got Hong Chow in the second. So it's a great cast. Natasha Lyonne is one of my absolute favorite actors, and she is phenomenal here. The third episode has her acting for, like, a good ten minutes opposite a little dog. And she's amazing because she's just so funny. Um... It is my shit. I love it to death. I will even seek out Peacock for it. That's how good this is. Uh, And I hope we get more, and I hope that maybe people in the TV landscape take inspiration from this, because this is it's such a breath of fresh air in a world where TV so often doesn't want to be televisual. So did they drop, like, a bunch of episodes at once? Because I I saw a bunch of buzz about this on uh, Twitter the other day, but I didn't look too deep into it. Yeah, so they dropped four for week one, and then there are ten in the season total, so there will be six yeah. more weeks with one a week. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's such an episodic thing. I think they could have just done it one at a time. I think they wanted to have multiple episodes out because episode one does establish part of the sort of format, but it is kind of a premise pilot. And then episode two is the first time you get sort of Natasha Leone out in the wild solving an unrelated case. And then I guess they just kind of... Like, episodes three and four are also, like, really fucking good. I think two is probably the weakest of the four, but I still really liked it. Um, and so I think it, it kind of makes sense as a batch to get you to know the rhythms. Because, again, this is just very unusual for TV today. And mm-hmm. even, like, I think Columbo has had a certain resurgence. You've talked about it on this podcast, for instance, yeah. Sean. Um, I've heard from different listeners who got into it because you sang its praises. Um, but, like, I do think the format... This is not the, like... Law and Order, CSI, whatever other kind of format thing. It it does play with this inverted detective format, and I've seen it throwing some people for a loop, being like, "Well, why do we see the murder at the beginning? I want a whodunit because I think they think it's going to be like Knives Out." Um, but I do think having the four for people who are unfamiliar with this kind of format hopefully gives you a sense of what it will be. But yes, there are four out. There will be ten. Um, it's so good. You, you are the episodes it. are the episodes like movie length? Uh, like how long are they? They vary so far. The first okay. one is like 65 minutes. The second and third are both near an hour. And the fourth one is shorter. It's like 45 minutes. I think they're all about the length they need to be. One difference from a lot of shows like this is they do spend a lot of time at the start of the episode in the location before Natasha Leone comes in, mm-hmm. just kind of establishing things. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that would fall flat if these were bad or uninteresting. Um, but they're all like, there's so much color. The guest stars are so cool. Like, I think if you really embrace the anthology side of it, you'll have a lot of fun with it. And then, um, yeah, who knows how long the, the future episodes will be. It feels very much like a what does the episode need kind of thing. But they, they don't go full Columbo, where Columbo was really a series of movies, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah they were like an hour to 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but it's up in that range. Cool, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Columbo is one of the best TV shows ever made, like... uh like, have you ever really watched much Columbo, Johnson? I'm going to now because I want more Poker Face, and there is no more until next week. Um, Peacock does have the full run of Columbo. 
There you go. Which is a good piece of tie-in from Peacock. Um, that mm-hmm. is, last time I checked out Peacock was in the new Halloween movie came out, which was streaming on Peacock, and I wanted to see the old Halloween movies, and they had absolutely zero of them. And I thought, that seems like a mistake, Peacock. Um, but they do have Columbo up on there. You can get the DVDs. Uh, I mean, I've seen clips. Like, it's become a, I think, popular show to do, like, here's a cool clip where Columbo turns around and says, hey, one more thing. Um, and I've seen it in that form a couple of times. But no, I've never, like, and I've wanted to. Like, I know the premiere was directed by Steven Spielberg. Yep. I know there's a bunch of great history to it. I'm sure I would dig the shit out of it. And now I probably will have to start binging it in between Poker Face episodes. Yeah, it's yeah, Columbo's amazing, and, and it is exactly what you're describing from Poker Face. Like that clearly is is taking the format from Columbo, not necessarily the like. You you use kung fu as a metaphor. I would say Zatoichi personally. If you're trying to get, <laughs> if you're trying to attach, attract me to the show, the 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 most effective strategy would have been saying it's Columbo meets Zatoichi. I that's probably not actually probably is kind of getting further away from the show, but like that's a hell of a pitch. Um, yes. Well, I mean, I use kung fu because it's an American TV show from yes. the period of Columbo, but yes, um, <laughs> yes, it yeah. is. I mean, Zatoichi fits too. He goes from town to town, righting wrongs. You know, uh, now Natasha Leone does not kill anyone with a sword, but you know, that's, there you go. That's unfortunate. You know, I just need one shot of her like, you know, in a room with a bunch of dudes, and there's a bunch of candles or whatever, and then she cuts the candles and the lights go out <laughs> and all the and then she kills all the guys while in like the pitch blackness that would be very cool That's she could pull favorite. it off the the other like gimmick of the show is that her character has some unexplained fantasy condition where she can tell when anyone is lying and that's kind of what kicks off most cases is people will be telling a lie about what they have done around her and she'll she she doesn't know what the truth is but she can tell something is up and then this leads her to like What's fun is that she has she can't stay in one place for too long because Benjamin Brad is following her, um, but she keeps getting wrapped up in like local shit and is like up against the clock, but always is like stay, which is always like the fun kind of hero, right? The hero mm-hmm. who wants to get out of town but can't. I love that kind of thing. So it's it's so good. Yeah, it sounds great. I'll I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, um, I just I made a tweet about this and I just want to reiterate it. I like the Last Jedi. It's a good movie. Thank fuckity Christ the nerds chased Ryan Johnson away from Star Wars because mm-hmm. think of all the great stuff we're getting because he is not working in the Disney salt mines making a Star Wars trilogy for Disney. Uh, we've gotten Knives Out. We've gotten Glass Onion. We've gotten a whole new Agatha Christie-esque mystery universe that is original with Daniel Craig doing his awesome southern accent. And now we've got this TV show. I'm just so glad. Star Wars. Star Wars is fine doing its own thing. I'm glad Ryan Johnson is getting to be Ryan Johnson. It's fun. Yeah, it does feel like, you know, the be- the best path, it probably would have been nice to have a an easier way to get here, but the best path was <laughs> not to have him do, yeah, like a, an entire Star Wars trilogy or whatever the original plan seemed to have been at some point. Um, it is more interesting to have him off doing his own thing and then Star Wars getting to do like its cool stuff in like the TV realm. Um, yes. That just seems to have been a, a better path. Um, For Star Wars, too, because Star Wars basically has exited movie theaters and is just doing TV. And because they're just doing TV, we're getting Andor and The Bad Batch and all sorts of cool kind of experimental stuff that you wouldn't get in movie theaters. Yeah, so it definitely feels like, you know, it was a traumatizing time for pop culture. Uh, (laughs) Why why ever the fuck Last Jedi became the schism point? Um, But it does feel like, hey... There was a bit of like a purging felt like it happened around that. And and, uh, and then once we've healed, it's maybe it was for the best. Maybe it was for the best that we went this way. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Um, what what stuff have you been up to, Sean? Uh, mostly just uh, I've I've wrapped up the arcade route in Sukihime. That's been using up Ooh, most of my nice. free time is playing that Sukihime remake. Um, it's it is incredibly good. Um, it is also something I don't want to spend a huge amount of time talking about because there's like nobody <laughs> listening to this can play that game. Um, but yes, uh, it's it's really good. So I'm like halfway through it because there are two routes in this remake, and I've started the Seal route, which is the second. Um, and yeah, Sukihime is awesome. That's great. Yeah, I uh, I do have the original non-remake version on my Mac, and I do at some point want to play it. Right now, I'm not playing anything else. I'm not really doing anything else other than my like day-to-day work obligations, but play Fire Emblem Engage, which we will be talking about this time next year because it is going to be one of the best games of 2023. Uh, holy shit, it's it's so fucking good. I like if anything. I think this game has definitely been warmly received. If anything, I think critics like kind of undersold how good it is. Like this mm-hmm. is primo A plus S tier Fire Emblem. It is tactically the best the series has ever been. The engage mechanics, which is the the whole conceit of the game, is that uh, basically in the exact same plot of Fate Stay Night minus the Holy Grail War, when there is a trial in this world, they have these devices where they are able to summon heroes of legend. And so they get the spirit of Marth and they get the spirit of Lynn from the original GBA Fire Emblem, mm-hmm. which is great. You've got Erica and Ephraim from the Sacred Stones. You've got Lucina from uh, Fire Emblem Awakening. Because I'm playing this game in Japanese, I learned she is Lukina in Japanese. That threw me for a loop. Uh, it's it's hilarious how many names are different in Japanese, and it's fun to play, connect the dots on that. Um, and and you assign each of those, you know, unit uh, emblems or rings to one of your units, and then they have these different effects that go on that. And so you could have a pure stave, you know, magician character who can only use spells, and then you put Lucina on them, and now they have a sword attack, and then they can also do these shielding things for their allies. And then there's a whole trait inheritance system and all this stuff. And so the that combined with just really, really fantastic map design, some of the best the series has ever seen, sometimes much more challenging than Fire Emblem games, I think, have been in recent years because they've given you so many more tools to tackle scenarios that they, they ramp up the difficulty alongside that. Uh, I'm playing on hard. There's there's normal hard and maddening, and it definitely feels like this is a game designed to maybe be played a second time on maddening once you have everything, um, because it is so rewarding. But then also, like, it is just... It is not a story of the um, ambition of Fire Emblem Three Houses or Fire Emblem Fates, or maybe even Awakening to some degree, but it is very much... If you have been playing Fire Emblem for a long time, if you remember the GBA games, if you've played any of the older games in translation, it is that sort of high fantasy melodrama with fun characters that like the series just executes at a very high level where it's not necessarily throwing ideas you've never seen before at you. It, this is about a fell dragon who has come to destroy the world. It's that Dragon Quest... Every Dragon Quest game is about an evil dragon destroying the world, right? Every Fire Emblem game is ultimately about the fell dragon. I love it. Um, And it's, you know, the moment-to-moment writing on the characters and the individual scenes and the big moments of melodrama and the twists are just so good. It's a ridiculously well-paced Fire Emblem game. Like, I am, I think, on chapter 16 or 17, and, you know, most Fire Emblems in the early chapters have a lot of chapters where you are on your way to a castle and you fight bandits on the way because the story hasn't really started yet, but they need you to do a fight. There's shockingly little of that in Fire Emblem Engage. It is moving constantly. 
Every single chapter so far, you have gotten new units or a new emblem ring or some other new ability. So you are always getting new stuff to play with. You've got all your paralogs and your skirmishes on the world map. Um, and so the pacing is just razor sharp. It is constantly moving and it feels very incident heavy. Um, and it is also, you know, fully linear and non-branching. So you're getting a fully satisfying finished story as you're playing it. Um, and I love that. The character designs, I think, if you have not played the game, I can understand why some people look at the character designs and go, oh, those look weird. I think when you see it in context, you see all the characters together, they're wonderful. They were designed by a younger artist. I'm forgetting her name right now. I should look this up. Um, but I actually started following her on Twitter because it's so fun to just like see all of the, she's putting out a bunch of art. She's someone who has also designed um, VTubers in the past. And so if you're looking at a character like Yunaka in Fire Emblem Engage and saying, man, that person really looks like a VTuber. <laughs> they do. That's kind of what she it's. It's a Mika Picasso is an illustrator in Japan. Um, and so she did all the designs here. And I think what's so fun is that they're like, they're very unique, they're very bold, they're very colorful designs, and every single one is unique and memorable. We talked about this last week with The Witch from Mercury, the Gundam show, Sean, that it was like mm -hmm. unusual how many characters like looked memorable in that show, that the character design was so rich from your big characters to your little characters. Engage definitely has that, where like, I think in most Fire Emblem games, your kind of top tier characters have really cool designs. And then you'll generally have a lot of kind of your subunits who might blend together a little bit. And I don't think that's true at all here. These are like such vibrant, interesting, sometimes crazy designs. But I love how much they kind of you know swing for the fences with it. It also has the highest production values this series has ever seen in terms of the number of cool, fully animated cutscenes. Uh, CG animated cutscenes, and then you've got your illustrated backgrounds that look like a good visual novel. Um, you've got your full voice acting. The Japanese cast is fantastic. You've got, it's just littered with great actors. Junichi Suabe plays one of the main lords um, and sounds just like Archer from Fate Stay Night, which is fun. You've got Hayami Saori. You've got um, Hikaru Midorikawa as Marth. Just lots of great actors in there um, and constantly discovering more. My boy Kenjiro Suda is one of the villains and he's great. Um, and, you know, it is just, this is the goods. This is what I want Fire Emblem to be. Uh, this is, I think, the best original, like, non-remake game in the series since Awakening. And I have not been able to put it down. My Switch, the, in, the, the clock in the game tells me I've put in 30 hours in the first week. I don't know if that's true. That's a lot. And even though I've been playing it a lot, I feel like that might be inflated. So I'm waiting... The Switch itself doesn't tell you its count until 10 days, so I have to wait another couple of days because the Switch count thing is weird. Um, but I've definitely been playing a shit ton of it, and it is uh, it's just a phenomenal game. If you've never played Fire Emblem, it's a good one to start with. Even though it does have the like characters returning from fast fi past Fire Emblems, the game doesn't lean on that so hard. They can also just be cool characters that you get to meet, um, especially because like half of them are from games that never have come out in the United States. So you wouldn't get to know them anyway um but it's it's the coolest i'm i cannot believe how much i'm loving this fucking game it is a, a video game heaven for me yeah it seems really good yeah like I've, I've watched some video of it like it is one of the most impressive looking switch games i think yes, i've ever is. seen like it's it's a very rare thing where i'll look at a footage of a switch game on like my tv watching a youtube video like a digital foundry breakdown or a trailer or something like that and i don't kind of have to 
mentally reset to be like, okay, right, this is a Switch game, um, which is, yeah. you know, like the most recent one I could think of that really had that was that Pokemon game where it's just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, right, right, right. Switch game, Switch game. That's a, that's um, a little worse than your usual yes. Switch game, but yes. <laughs> but still, you're like, it, this would only be passingly acceptable if you're looking at it on a little tiny screen. Like, that's the only way yes. you could, like, tolerate that this thing looks like that. Um, and yes, Pokemon is a very extreme example. Um, but Fire Emblem Engage, from what I saw, just looked good. With with the one exception of I think all the character designs looked awesome. From what I saw, I can't get I can't get behind the character the main character's hair. It's the one <laughs> thing I can't tolerate. I can't abide. Again, it's like all the other characters looked great. Um, the the one of the VTubers you're alluding to that the artist designed is Hakos Bales, who's a Hollow Live English Gen Two VTuber that I really like. Um, I noticed that she has uh, I think she streamed some of this game because I saw like a thumbnail that was her with like all the other characters around her. Um, and I didn't at that point put together that oath. The reason why she looks like all those characters is because it's the same person designed them. But I think I think the red blue hair thing was just a it's just a bridge too far. It's a bit too adventurous. <laughs> you know, I, I I can applaud the boldness of what they're going for, but I just can't accept it. It is uh, I will just say this, good or bad, it is striking throughout. You never forget that he has harsh red blue hair one side and the other i think i'm pretty close to seeing the there is a plot justification for it i'm pretty sure i have a guess where it is going i haven't gotten to the big twist um but i think there is a plot justification for it uh but whether or not that means you like it you know who whatever but like the uh it is it is just fun to like see a game with character designs kind of this modern and unique there's you know plenty of games that want to look like anime there's few that like want to look like anime and then go get like a literal like VTuber creator, someone who's like a young person kind of like in fandom art spaces to like do this. And it's just very cool. I kind of like how just throw caution to the wind. This looks like a game from 2023. God damn it. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's uh it's a ton of fun. We will talk about it. I'm sure in, in greater depth in the weeks to come and on the best games of 2023 list, because who boy, this is this is one where I will be. There's a lot of like huge games coming out this year. This is one I will be holding. I think everything up to just because I am such a Fire Emblem nut, and this like scratches that itch so hard. Good. Well, I you know I remember how kind of like bummed you were ultimately at the end of Fire Emblem Three Houses that like it's just that was a long seemed like a long tiring journey uh, to play through. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm glad that it seems like this one is is hitting you know all all the right notes. It is, I, you know, Fire Emblem Three Houses, if, if you don't remember, one of the things that, like, where that game kind of broke me is you get to the big time skip, and it's such a cool series of plot, like, twists and everything, and I was excited, like, okay, they're going to change up the format, because the format of that game got kind of, like, overbearing at a certain point, and I'm like, I'm excited for them to change it up, and then after the time skip... They just reset everything and it's exactly the same and nothing changes whatsoever. And now, and you don't go on the road, you're still at the school, you still do the classes, all that stuff. Um, and it's so, like, bogged it down for me. And there was just something about, like, in Chapter 2 and 3 when Fire Emblem Engage opens up and you see the world map and you're moving on it and you're moving your fucking units around the map. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. We're on the road again. This is a Fire Emblem game. We're, we're going from town to town. We're fighting bandits on the way. This is what I want. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Do you want to dive into our top 10 games of 2022? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah. You're talking about some newfangled 2023 games. Let's talk about some old school, some retro games, some games that came out in <laughs> 2022. 
indeed. And, you know, just to remind everyone what our sort of personal internal rules are for this, it's a game, obviously any game that came out new in 2022 qualifies. Uh, we've since kind of adjusted for mobile games that are continuing, uh, not mobile, like, but live service games that are continuing. We can talk about that year's content that might come up today. Um, remakes qualify, but not remasters. So if it is the basically same game with a coat of paint, we're probably not going to put that on the list. If it's a true like remake of the game, we can put it on the list. Or if it's a foreign game that didn't come to the United States until 2022, we could put it on the list. Uh, and that's the basics. Uh, but also, these are just the 10 games you played this year, Sean. Yes, these are the 10 games we played this year. I'm just going to go ahead, Jonathan, let me knock out my one honorable mention. This okay. is a game I didn't play this year. This is the game I would have had on this list if, if we had done this in, like, mid-December. Um, which is the game The Quarry. Is it was developed by Supermassive Games. People maybe know best their game Until Dawn, which was a PS4 exclusive, which is like a, a and the quarry is very much in that tradition where it's a horror game that is very story focused. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure kind of thing, but with very high production values and like motion capture actors and that kind of stuff. Um, and it's just like a kind of B movie horror kind of story, and it's about you making choices with this big cast of. Um, kind of cliche horror movie characters to see if they're going to live or die and like every single character could live by the end of the game or every single or you could beat the game and have every single character be dead um, depending on how you played it and so it's very much a like your choices matter kind of telltale thing but in a Sam Raimi-esque goofy B horror movie kind of world and I use Sam Raimi specifically because in uh, the quarry one of the characters is actually played by Ted Raimi Sam Raimi's brother which is fun um, so this is like a very good game to watch people play. I did not play it myself, but I did watch uh, all the way through Shishido Botan, the Hollow Eye VTuber, <laughs> play the Quarry. If you want to see a good uh, stream of that game, well, if you, and you can understand Japanese, I guess that is a really funny one. Um, and it is, it is, and that is one of the things that was fun about watching it was both getting to see the game, which is really cool. I think they like captured the horror B movie vibe so well. Um, and it's like, it's very funny when it gets gory, it is like really gory and it can get very tense. And it's just like, it is like watching a really fun, good B horror movie kind of thing with the added kind of, um, interactive choose your own adventure thing of wondering, oh, it, like would this, could this go this way? Like how could things have been different is fun. Uh, but it is also even more fun on top of that to watch probably a like 20 or early 30 something Japanese woman through the avatar of a like lion anime girl play through that game with the Japanese VO also, which like adds this whole other weird layer to it and like trying to interpret American pop culture references and that kind of stuff through that lens. Um, it is one of the most fun game streams I watched this year was of the quarry. And I do think that game seems really, really cool. Uh, I didn't actually play it, but I did see the whole thing through. So, you know, it would have sort of counted in a weird way if I had been in a situation where I had to put it on the list. So it gets an honorable mention. I think that makes sense. I mean, Until Dawn has no multiplayer component, but became known as a multiplayer game because you would yes. get your friends together and like play it in a room or you would use like the PS4's like stream option to like have people watch it remotely. Um, and I actually didn't know, I had seen the logo for the quarry. I didn't know what it was. And now that you're saying this, I actually kind of want to, play it or watch it or something because that sounds like a lot of fun but yeah i think that would have belonged on your list why the hell not you know we're every single year we have opened the boundaries of what this list is more and more and it's very fun to just yes. break all the rules 
yeah, that uh, putting a game on the list that I have not yet play actually played is a is a pretty big line to cross, and I would have <laughs> I would have done it if I had to, but luckily, it, I think it well deserves an honorable mention, um, and maybe one day we'll cross the 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 bridge of. Well, I watched this whole game be it played, but I didn't play it. So, but I know it well enough that I could say if I did play it, I would have really liked it. Eventually, that might have to happen. Uh, you yeah, know, <laughs> I don't have as much time to play games since I used to being a teacher. All right, uh, my honorable mentions. I'll go through these really quick. Um, one is Lego Star Wars: The Skywalker Saga, a game I did not technically finish because it is so ludicrously big. This is like one of the most feature-rich games I have ever seen. It is all nine Star Wars movies. It is every major location in Star Wars. It is every major locate character in Star Wars, all Legoified, and it is super fun. And one day I will probably go back to it and just play around in it more because it is a blast. Um, that's on Game Pass now, so definitely people should check that out. Uh, Tunic on Xbox, a game inspired hmm. by sort of the original Legend of Zelda. Really enjoyed that game. I think that's on other platforms now, too. When I played it, it was yes. on Game Pass. Um, but that is... It, it kind of fell flat for me a little bit near the end because I think the combat system is too limited for some of the stuff they throw at you. But the basic puzzle solving and exploration and the whole idea of the game manual that you fill in as you play is so cool. I hope this gets a sequel where they get to improve on some things because it's a special little game. Um, Splatoon 3 on Switch It's more Splatoon It's kind of the proper full sequel to the original Splatoon um, That Splatoon 2 Was sort of half a port to the Switch Half an original game Splatoon 3 is the real deal And uh, very very fun um, Not quite as, as much as 10 other games on my list But I enjoy Splatoon 3 a lot um, Here's one that was tough for me to cut Because it's so good Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge which is the new TMNT game kind of inspired by games like Turtles in Time. Even if you're not a big TMNT fan, if you have any love for good pixel art, for a solid little beat-em-up game, this is such a blast. I look forward to playing it again at some point because it is uh, very, very fun and so cool to look at. And, and I love all the... Anytime we get modern pixel art with you know a crazy number of frames of animation, it's great. Uh, Sonic Frontiers, a uh, new 3D Sonic game. I enjoyed it less ultimately than when we reviewed it because i i think the second half of the game is is significantly weaker uh and i eventually fell off of it because it, i grew frustrated with some of the monotony of it i still think it is one of the better 3d sonic games and an interesting update of the format and then the hardest game for me to leave off of my list because it's hard for me to resist playing it sometimes is marvel snap the mobile ios an Android game that is a new card game from the creators of Hearthstone, but with Marvel characters, such a good pick-up-and-play, quick, you know, card battler that is so far not bogged down by too much complexity and systems, even if they are adding new stuff all the time. I don't think it's... There have been some locations they've added that have been annoying because of the, the sort of random location aspect of it, I think, is one of the best ideas, but sometimes the locations can be stupid. Uh, but overall, uh, still really loving this one and looking forward to continuing playing it and see what, what they do with it in the new year. Those are my honorable mentions. You played a lot more games that came out this year than me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, oh, you know, I guess I could also say Pokemon Legends Arceus. I did not finish that one. 
I do think it has some cool ideas. It was eclipsed for me by a different Pokemon game you might hear about a little later, but that is another game I did technically play this year. Uh, I always forget because that was like very early January 2022, and I forget it was a 2022 game, but I do have yeah, it on it, here. It feels like the release of that other Pokemon game that maybe will be on your list has like made it impossible to comprehend the fact that Pokemon Legends Arceus came out this year. Like yes. I've had that moment multiple times um, like seeing some like in game of year list and stuff like that being like, Oh God, that was this year. How is that possible? It's like, Oh, right. I guess they did put out two big Pokemon games this year. That's certifiably insane. Why did they do that? I, especially when one of them needed yeah. more time in the oven. Uh, it was weird. It was certifiably insane. That's very true. All right. Uh, do you want to go ahead and dive into the top 10, Sean? Yes, let's let's dive into the top 10. I'll just go ahead and start because you actually already mentioned, Jonathan, what my number 10 game is. My number 10 game is Sonic Frontiers, the the hot new uh, 3D Sonic game, the first 3D Sonic game on this list since Sonic Generations. Like so long ago, I don't actually still have the word doc for that year's game of the year list. Um, Well, that was 2011. So that was a monthly 10 episode. That was not a weekly stuff podcast yet long time ago yeah i think the 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 oldest uh, game of the year word doc i still actually have is our 2015 one i think <laughs> everything before that was on an old hard drive that i forgot to transfer stuff off of um so yeah it's been a long time since we had a 3d sonic game we did have sonic mania um and and hatsune miku which was also that year so in my head those are two both sonic games because hatsune miku is sonic miku to me um so it's been a while since we had a, a sonic game uh, on this list, and I really love Sonic Frontiers. Now, it is my number 10, because I do think it is th- easily the roughest around the edges of any game on my list this year. Um, and I definitely, I think I would generally agree that I think the back half of the game is weaker. I think the first two islands are the two best, like, kind of sections of the game. But I really did enjoy the hell out of this game. And particularly, I think it came out at a good time for me where, you know, it was a pretty busy... Um, few weeks at work when Sonic Frontiers came out and that game is so designed to be played in really quick tiny little bursts like little like 10-15 minute like sessions of Sonic Frontiers honestly works incredibly well Um, and so it gets for people who are new they maybe don't know this but I give uh, special awards to all the games in my top 10 Um, and the first award I'm giving to Sonic Frontiers is the Tony Hawk Presents the Sickest Tricks Award because to me (laughs) this game is all about the sick tricks it's about little quick sessions of running around the world, seeing some weird metals floating out in the sky or looking at your map and saying like, oh, I haven't clearly explored here much. And just going and grinding on some rails and jumping off ramps and homing attack things and just sort of doing the like weird tricks in navigating the environment. And that's the majority of what the game is. And in those quick little bursts, it does have this like Tony Hawk-esque feel to it of where you're just kind of looking at the environment and putting together all the pieces of here is how I can navigate this to get these um, items in the world and these collectibles. And then particularly once you start getting some of the upgrades and start seeing a little bit more of the kind of like the, the bigger picture of things, the way you can like completely sequence break huge, even like very long kind of sequential puzzles that you're meant to like navigational puzzles you're meant to go through to get to an endpoint. You can figure out other ways to navigate the environment and ramp off this and boost here and grind off this that will allow you to like get those objects without doing the like sort of intended path. And that's also one of the things that's very fun that again reminds me of playing like a Tony Hawk's pro skater is saying like, 
well, yeah, I could get the videotape by doing this and ramping off this thing. Or if I get enough momentum here and I do this fucking trick and I go off this ramp, well, I can just like shoot all the way over here and get the collectible on the way. Um, it's got a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's a very different kind of vibe for a 3D Sonic game, but does really fit um, sort of the general style of Sonic and pushes it into a cool new direction. Um, another one of the awards I give it, so I gave it Tony Hawk Presents the Sickest Tricks Award. I also give it Crush 40 Presents the Sickest Tracks Award because it has some of the sickest music tracks you'll see on any soundtrack. Like every Sonic game has a fucking killer soundtrack. It is like one of the hallmarks of the franchise. Um, 3D Sonics, even when they were bad, had really good soundtracks. Um, and Sonic Frontiers is no exception in terms of it has an incredible soundtrack. Um, in particular, it's got a bunch of uh, like kind of like heavy metal screamo songs that play during these supersonic boss fights. Um, and one thing I love is that like each one gets progressively better than the previous one. So there are the three of these tracks, Undefeatable, Find Your Flame, and Blake Breakthrough It All, that do like really kind of carry on the Crush 40 spirit. For people who don't know, Crush 40 is the name of the like, quote unquote, band made to play the rock songs in like the Sonic Adventure era games. So like, you know, Live and Learn and that kind of stuff from Sonic Adventure 2 is by Crush 40. Um, and this is, these songs feel like the modern version of those kinds of things. In particular, Undefeatable, which I think is the third boss fight song, which is where you fight the guy with like the giant sword, is a, one of the best boss fights in terms of for a 3D Sonic game, which typically don't have great boss fights. But this one, I think they really kind of push the like sort of, um, scale of it to such a ridiculous length. They make it so fucking crazy anime and then have this big crazy metal song play. Um, it's just got really strong vibes in that sense. Um, and then some of the other stuff I love about the game is, well, I don't think it's not going to sort of like blow your socks off in terms of the narrative. It's not going to, it's not fucking The Last of Us or anything. Um, but it is for a Sonic game. It's been a long time since 3D Sonic in terms of the ones that I played had a story that I felt like connected me really to kind of like the characters in a way that I cared about in the way that the Sonic Adventure 1 and 2 stories um, really do. Or even in some ways, some of the stuff in Sonic 2006, which is a terrible game, and some of the story stuff is terrible, but there are pockets of the story there where you could still see the like style that the Sonic Adventure stories had that was fun. Um, and to me, Sonic Frontiers is not all the way there because it, it it's a little like sort of hanging out there in the void. Like it, it's sort of, it's hard to understand what is the history of these versions of the characters because all that has been so kind of confusing throughout the 3D era of Sonic. But the writing for like Tails and Knuckles and Amy and Sonic, I think is so good. And it really captures the voice of those characters in a way I haven't felt for 3D Sonic in a long time. And it makes me, and this is just true of all of Sonic Frontiers, it makes me really kind of positive and optimistic for the future of 3D Sonic if they build off of this base, both in terms of gameplay, but also in terms of writing and story. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff they can do. And the ending of the game and where they go with Sage, who is the big new character in this game, like, is touching in its own way. Like, in a way that reminds me of how I really do love the stories of Sonic Adventure, Sonic Adventure 2, as weird and goofy and ridiculous and Saturday morning cartoon as they are. There is like an earnestness to it that I think is really effective. And to me, Sonic Frontiers captures that tone, particularly with Sage's story in a way I love. Um, and then the last award I want to give it, and to me, this is like really sums up what Sonic Frontiers feels like to me. I get the You Can Reach the Other Side of the Rainbow Award for bringing <laughs> the Sonic CD opening to life. 
uh, because that has always been ever since I saw that thing on the like Sonic Mega Collection, Genesis Mega Collection or whatever on the original Xbox, um, which was one of the many, many giant collections of Sonic the Hedgehog games they've released over the year. Pretty sure that was the first time I ever saw the animated Sonic CD opening with Sonic Boom, which is where that lyric I pulled for the word comes from. Um, it has always captured my imagination of like, yeah, this is what Sonic looks like. Like this is Sonic not contained by like the 2D world of the games, but is able to just like run free and bounce off these rocks and do all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's really what Sonic Frontiers feels like. It's capturing that kind of spirit. So I really hope that they, they build off of this foundation. They're going to do some of this DLC stuff where they're going to put in some of like Knuckles and Tails as playable characters. Um, and Sonic Frontiers sold really well. Um, particularly for a 3D Sonic game. So maybe, maybe this time, maybe this time they will have an actual streak of good 3D Sonic games and they won't do make a good one and then abandon everything that made it good immediately in the next game, which they've been doing fucking forever. Maybe finally they will actually build off of this foundation. Or this time in 2024, we'll be talking about Sonic Unleashed 2 and they just decided to bring back Werehog. And but and it's only Werehog. They don't even yes. put in the like the parts of Sonic Unleashed that people like. It's just the Werehog levels, and they're like, that's the thing we want. We just want Sonic Werehog the game. And if we're all being honest, that's probably what is most likely. Uh, but I do hope for Sonic Frontiers 2 as well. Uh, and I think your last award there does sum up what is best about this game and what I want to see them continue to play with. Because yeah. it is it is cool to to see the other side of the rainbow. My number 10 game of the year is Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Here we go again. The second Modern Warfare 2 game. Let me stop you there, Jonathan, because it's just more convenient to do it this way. I'll just go ahead and say that my number 9 game of the year is Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Here we go again. Uh, yes. <laughs> so here, here, here we go again, Jonathan. Here we go again. And here's the thing. I think this would be higher if the multiplayer had had more interesting support in the last couple months. I think, like... They've, they've added the Warzone, and it is a good version of Warzone. They've added the DMZ thing. I, I wish there were a few more maps in the normal multiplayer playlists. They've added, like, Shoot House. They've added the little crate uh, boat one that I... The Shipment, which I do love Shipment. I love just going in and playing on that one. But I wish there was a little more content there. Like, they had to cut out the Valderas Museum one from the beta for still unknown reasons. That might be coming in Season 3, but we're not sure. Um... But, you know, I think when this launched, the campaign is one of the best Call of Duty has ever had. Not quite to the level of maybe um, Infinite Warfare, but it is such a unique, fun campaign where every level has a big idea. A lot of levels have different bespoke mechanics. And I think it basically, like, goes for the sort of Naughty Dog Uncharted uh, idea of like this is a big playable action movie but instead of playable action movie meaning watching a pretty cool cutscene where you do inputs every once in a while you're really actually meaningfully playing it so like there's a big truck chase where they've done that, that like reminds you of the truck chase from like Raiders of the Lost Ark but you are playing as a soldier who can drive the car and shoot and jump out of the car and jump from roof to roof and you're really actually playing it and you can fail and it's hard and there's so many scenes like that where they've come up with fun bespoke ways to use the mechanics uh, including a whole survival section that is really great and I just that campaign is a absolute banger of a first person shooter campaign and then of course you know 
this is modern Call of Duty from Infinity Ward in the Modern Warfare brand. It's it plays as well as Call of Duty ever has, and so the multiplayer is tons and tons of fun. I think it does feel slightly lacking compared to where Modern Warfare One was at this point. And by Modern Warfare One, I mean the one from 2019. Um, but you know, still overall, I still play this game pretty regularly with my brother online or alone, and I have a ton of fun with it. Um, this is. This is the goods. This is what I like Call of Duty to be. And again, that campaign, I hope they, they we get some DLC or some extra stuff with it because it's, uh, as, as Call of Duty, I think, as a single-player experience has been pretty neglected in recent years. But, you know, once upon a time, they made some of the best campaigns, and I think we're inching back there because Infinity Ward is really good at this. Uh, and I think that is where this game probably deserves the most praise, even though this game does include the most batshit fucking plot of 2022 where you have uh iranian terrorists working with the mexican cartel uh it's an absolute fucking fox news fever dream but to the like pushed to a point where it is honestly very funny so i even kind of enjoy it on that level yeah yeah i gave it there the god this shit is fucking dumb award <laughs> to the whole campaign uh but especially the border hopping level um that that's that's the one that is the fox news fever dream just like Okay, like a Iranian terrorist who's working with the Mexican cartel that jumps the fence and goes into a like Texas neighborhood, and then you're like playing as the Mexican special forces that go over the border as well without permission to go <laughs> fuck the nets. Like this is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah, I think for me, like one of the things that makes it a little bit hard to try to push Modern Warfare Two here up any higher on the list is that like it is a really good game and it's a very fun sequel. But it doesn't, to me, like, push the envelope of that first game very far. Um, like, I think it makes some smart improvements here or there. Like, I think overall, I would say the campaign is better. Um, but, like, it doesn't, you know, it's not surprising in the way that Modern Warfare 2019 was. Like, that game felt like it's like a bolt of lightning of, like, oh, my God, this is, like, the future of Call of Duty. And this is still the future of Call of Duty, and this game is great. But it, is, but it doesn't have that sort of freshness to it um because i i fell off the i mean i played a lot of the multiplayer um i didn't quite hit the level cap but i got i've gotten pretty close but i haven't played it in a while it's a little bit hard for me to stick with call of duty multiplayer when i'm also doing my genshin impact shit i don't have a lot of room in my life for another game i'm playing a little bit every day um but i did play a lot of the multiplayer it is really fun i think i'm with you that like they needed to add more a little bit sooner probably to kind of keep my interest in there like, I like the maps that are there, but I do think that Modern Warfare 2019 had a better overall map selection. Um, that's something that kept me coming back to that game a little bit more than this one, where it feels like there are just not quite enough maps. Um, and they've added some stuff. They've added some of, like, the old maps in, like, Shoot House from 2019 and Shipment, um, and that has helped a bit. Um, but there is a lot of really good stuff in the game. Like, for me, I gave two of my other awards I gave it are Welcome Back Old Friend Award to the Mark II Carbine. This is the Libra Action <laughs> Rifle. For people who don't know or don't remember when I've talked about these games in the past, for these new Modern Warfare games, the way I play is really, like, I get the, like, sort of slow-firing, high-power, longer-range rifles, but aren't a sniper rifles, the marksman rifle category in the game, or battle rifle sometimes and use those and play much more kind of methodically. Um, and it's an incredibly fun way for me to play these games that does not rely on like Twitch speed factor and stuff like that, which, you know, in my grizzled old age relative to the average age of Call of Duty players, it's just not possible for me to keep up with that kind of shit. But you, I feel like I can do really well playing slower like that. 
Um, and so having this like cool kind of retro lever action, old West feeling rifle um, is very fun. And it's like legitimately very effective. And the other thing that kind of goes hand in hand with that is it gives us the John Wick seal of approval for making handguns actually effective. Yes. Um, because like handguns or pistols in this game are actually useful, particularly if you're playing with your primary weapon being that slower firing longer range rifle and you're trying to like move through like a building or something in the map and you're going in close quarters, it is actually smarter to switch to your pistol because you're much more mobile and effective in that kind of close combat scenario. And that's really impressive to me that they are able to finally like dial in the balance of that even better than the previous Modern Warfare game had at making that feel like it tactically makes sense to do rather than trying to do like 360 no scoping or whatever the fuck you do in the older Call of Duty games where generally in Call of Duty pistols have felt completely pointless as they do in most modern first person shooters. Um, and I thought they like finally nailed the exact balance you need to have the pistols be like effective and make sense within the overall weapon sandbox. And that was one of my favorite things um, that I think Modern Warfare 2 specifically did really well with its game design. Yeah, I, I love the the weapon sandbox. I've had a lot of fun experience because you can just build your weapons in really fun, silly mm -hmm. ways. You know, I at one point there's the God, I'm forgetting the name of the gun, but it is one of the like slower firing battle rifle or marksman rifle kind of things. And like sawed that thing off and like cut it in half and then put a big scope on it and then like fixed fiddled with it so it only had a couple of shots in it at any one time but it was like very fast and accurate um did stuff like that where i wound up like my main gun combo right now is uh it's not an ak-47 but it's like an ak-40 it's the version of the ak in this game mm -hmm, um yeah. i think it's it's called something else but it's like the ak which is not a gun i usually use because i find it a little unwieldy but I basically was just, just trying to get like, what's a gun that is like, does a lot of damage, is reasonably accurate, and that I can like kind of go to sites fast on. And I leveled that gun up and modded it and did all my things so that like, one, I have no scope on it whatsoever. I'm not using an optic because I find the like just built in optics good enough on it. Um, and then I did all of these things to stabilize it and also to make aiming down sites fast. And I'm at a point where I hit my mouse two button and it feels like instantaneous I am down sights. Like it just, in the time it takes me to depress mouse two, it's down sights and I can shoot and I'm like very accurate, fast and mobile with it. But also like it has some range. Like I get a lot of long shot kills with it, like 50, 60 meters, which I should not be doing with a fucking AK with no scope on it. Um, but it's very fun. And then you have a handgun on the other side. And when I go into a building, I imagine myself doing the John Wick thing where he pulls the gun up to his chin and turns it to the side so he can be more accurate with it. Uh, and I wish that was an animation you could put in Call of Duty because that's my favorite thing John Wick does with his handgun. Uh, and I definitely, I always, in my head, I am Keanu Reeves in all of those scenes. Um, unless I die, in which case I'm one of the people Keanu Reeves was fighting uh, in John Wick. So it's it's still, look, it's very fun. It's on this top ten for a reason. If you like Call of Duty, this is this is very good, obviously. Yes, yeah, it's, it is a great game. Yeah. All right, my number nine, because you did your number nine. Yep. Uh, my number nine is also a first-person shooter, but very different. It is... Power Wash Simulator. <laughs> and <laughs> Power Wash Simulator, which has been an Xbox and PC exclusive. It is coming to PlayStation and Nintendo Switch 
I think this week, I think it's coming like this Tuesday, and they are doing an expansion where you clean Lara Croft's manor from Tomb Raider uh, is the next update with it. So if you get it on your PlayStation or Switch, I think it'll have that in there, which sounds fun. Um, but Power Wash Simulator is so good. It is the most like zen, meditative game I've ever played because you go in, you pick your level, they are very creative with the environments. You know, the first thing you'll do in Power Wash Simulator is you will wash a car or a truck and then eventually a house. And then soon you're at a playground or you're washing a big shoe from like a little miniature world exhibit or you're doing a fucking roller coaster at an amusement park, all sorts of things. And at its heart, it's really a puzzle game because it is, you have these eventually very big objects and environments that are covered in dirt. You have your power washing gun and you eventually get different nozzles and attachments and cleaners and all these things to use. And you basically have to figure out where is all the grime? What is the most efficient way to get rid of it? How do I clean all of this in a fairly efficient manner? Uh, and there is a puzzle game kind of aspect to it that is satisfying because it does, it's not as simple as just kind of monotonously just, you know, holding down the trigger and firing water. Uh, but it is also to a certain extent a monotonous holding down the trigger and firing water. And what is so fun about it is just seeing these cool environments, going in, washing, having a big task in front of you and having to do the basic, you know, for me at least, process of, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You go one bite at a time. This is the advice my music teacher gave me in middle school. This is the advice I would give to my students when they were, when I did ACT test prep. You know, you break down a big task into pieces and that's how you have to get through Power Wash Simulator Man. And it is very relaxing to like put on a podcast or listen to some music and play power wash simulator and just go through like okay i can't think about cleaning this whole building because it's so big and daunting so we're just going to focus on this wall right now and we're going to get this wall or like these buttresses on the castle we got to get those which means we got to figure out how we're going to get up in the air and what extension we're going to use and we're going to get those those fucking buttresses or whatever uh and and oh god i think this whole thing is clean i'm at 99 percent. where is the extra dirt let's figure out where that dirt is it's also a very fun co-op game if you want to bring a friend in and they can help you clean it's a it's a very simple drop-in drop-out co-op and uh i love it it is a relaxing therapeutic game that is also surprisingly deep in its power wash mechanics and very creative in the environments it sends you to uh such a silly idea for a game it should not be as good as it is it should not have the longevity that it has but it does. It's uh, This is a, an indie game through and through, and uh, I love the entire spirit behind it. Very good. <laughs> I'm just, I, just, I, I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen VTubers play some of this game, so I, I yes. know exactly what it is. I like to imagine listeners who maybe have not seen any Power Wash Simulator trying to picture <laughs> the game based on how you've been describing it uh, and think is music. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I feel like they could have like subtitled the game like anxiety management in the video game. Um, that to me is like what uh, what Power Wash Simulator is. It basically is, but yeah, you know, you can and you can go power wash the fucking like Sphinx from Egypt. You can power wash the subway. There's all sorts of stuff you can power wash. I give this game the Water Sports Award for most. Wa oh wait, wait, that came out wrong. Sean, go on to number eight. My number eight, uh, you're talking about Power Wash Simulator, and I'm talking about what it was, has got to be the most obscure game that's going to be on either of our lists. Um, I'm talking about Hollow Cure. This is 
a vampire survivors like <laughs> uh, using the Hall Alive um, characters, streamers from the Hall Alive branch of VTubers. This is the game that had we not done the Sean VTuber birthday podcast would have been the moment where I would have had to finally expose to the world that I'm a filthy watcher of VTuber content. Um, but luckily, we've we've already crossed that bridge. Jonathan, you know what VTubers are. Um, you know what a Kodone is. So, and you know what a Vampire Survivors is. So, it's, you know, that doesn't need any explanation to you. Um, for people who don't know, VTubers are a, like, um, you know, kind of video game streamer that use 2D or 3D animated avatars, usually in an anime art style. So they kind of play a character while they stream games or do other online content. Um, and Hall Live is a big sort of uh, company that manages a whole massive group of different VTubers. Uh, and it has a very, very active fan community. Amongst that fan community is one person whose online handle is uh, KU, who is incredibly talented, so talented that I give him the How Can One Person Be This Talented Award for making everything in this damn video game. Um, because Hollow Cure is a fan game, but it has such incredibly high production values. I mean, way better production values than Vampire Survivors, which is a better game that is going to be that we'll get to later on the list. Um, but there was a while where I kind of had Hollow Cure higher on the list in my head than Vampire Survivors because the and the pixel art is so good. The way KU has interpreted the VTuber avatars into kind of chibi pixel art and animated it looks phenomenal. It gets my Metal Slug Award for best pixel art because it's just the pixel art fucking looks great. Uh, all the music was done by KU, which are like digitized kind of chiptune versions of different Hall Live songs. Um, and then all the game design was also done by KU. KU is also a professional animator who has like worked with animation studios and stuff in Japan. So it's like he is incredibly talented, but he also apparently makes video games. Hall Cure is also completely for free. Um, and like Hall Live has like given it like the blessing that's like, yeah, you can make this game and keep updating it and stuff. Um, and fundamentally what it is is a vampire survivor style game where you pick one of the Hall Live VTubers that have been implemented in the game so far. Um, and you try to survive a round where enemies come and attack you and you have weapons that sort of fire automatically. And as you defeat enemies, you pick up experience points. And then when you eventually level up, you can either get new weapons or items that enhance your abilities, or you can upgrade the existing items or weapons you have to make them more powerful with the goal to survive increasingly like more difficult and numerous waves of enemies to survive for, I think in this it's, um, 20 minutes, not 30 minutes, um, and it's really good. I would actually say, compared to Vampire Survivors, Hollow Cure is better in the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. I think Vampire Survivors, which we'll get to later, has like a better kind of meta game structure to it that ultimately pushes it to a higher level, is up higher on my list. But Hollow Cure has so much variety in terms of how you build the characters. And I think even if you don't know anything about Hollow Live or VTubers, you could have a lot of fun playing this game because every single character has a unique weapon that they start with that also has like a unique awakened form that you can get when you upgrade it all the way. Um, and every character has a special move that is unique to that character. And every character has three different skills they can unlock during a run that also are unique to them. Meaning that every single character has a pretty like specific kind of style of play that they are designed towards that then interacts with the universal collection of weapons and abilities that all characters can get in different ways so that different characters synergize with the existing kind of pool of weapons and abilities you can normally unlock thus allowing you to every single time you play through with a different character play it in a very different way and see different kind of builds and things like that and strategies 
compared to Vampire Survivors, which is a game that generally speaking, once you kind of figured out how to beat a level, beating a level isn't hard. It then is about like the meta game in Vampire Survivors. In Hollow Cure, like every time you play through, it's actually like challenging and it's like really kind of making you think about how I'm going to put together this build of characters. And it feels like you get to like play Vampire Survivors for the first time, like 20 times because they've got so far KU has implemented the two um, generations of English Hololive VTubers, which were the first batch in the original update. And then he has added in uh, the zero generation of Hololive VTubers from Japan, which are like um, uh, Miko and Suisei and Tokino Soda and like some of the original ones, as well as Hololive Gamers, which for you, Jonathan, that includes Korone um, and Okayu and Fubihi and Mio. Uh, this also gets, this isn't an award. I couldn't think of an award to phrase this. I just wrote Yubi Yubi on here, which is just Kodane's catchphrase. It's not an award. I just wrote Yubi Yubi on this document because I was trying to figure out what award I'd give it for Hall Life stuff. And I just said Yubi Yubi because Kodane's in it and Kodane's great. Um, and this whole game is amazing. It's just full of such love for the Hall Live brand and like it's the community and the characters and it has that warmth of that kind of VTuber world while also having like really, really strong gameplay design chops to back all that stuff up that puts it, I've played a few um, Vampire Survivors knockoffs a little bit over this year because there's like a million of them. Um, and the only one that to me like stands up next to the original is Hollow Cure. Um, and it's a great game and it's available for free. And if people want to play it, whether or not you know VTuber stuff or not, I highly recommend taking checking Hollow Cure out because it is truly awesome. Yes, that's awesome. I uh, I had not played it yet. You recommended it to me because it's a PC game only. Yes. Uh, I bet I can get this running on my Mac actually now because with the same software I got some visual novels running recently, this is a simple enough game that I bet I could get it working. Um, so I will take a look at that because I love Vampire Survivors, as you're going to hear about uh, in a bit, and uh, this sounds great as well. Yes, Hall Cure is two thumbs up, and then Codene Steals does thumbs. Um, yes. That's what she does. <laughs> All right, my number eight game of the year is Kirby and the Forgotten Land for Nintendo Switch, a game I don't think I've talked about on the podcast at all yet. But this came out back in March. I think I got it in September or October, and I didn't really play it in earnest until the holiday break where I was kind of alternating this and uh, a certain visual novel we might talk about in a bit. Uh, and Kirby and the Forgotten Land is fantastic, and I think... It, it it was popular. It sold a lot of copies, Kirby games. Kirby is that series that you look at and you go, people don't talk about Kirby that much. Why is there a Kirby game every year? And then you look at the numbers and you're like, oh, because they regularly sell 5 to 10 million copies. Um, and this game sold like 5 to 10 million copies. It was huge. Um, and But I, I have not seen it on as many like year-end countdowns as I think it should be because this is a really impressive Nintendo platformer. Um, it is a bit of a reinvention of Kirby. I think in the West, it got kind of ignored by a lot of critics because it its preview at the Nintendo Direct made it look a little bit like Kirby Breath of the Wild. It is not in any way, shape, or form Kirby Breath of the Wild. And I think some people took that as like, that must mean it's disappointing, which is fucking stupid. Uh, one, not everything can or should be Breath of the Wild. And two, we don't review games based on trailers, people. We review them based on the actual game. What this actually is, is it's 
the Kirby version of Mario 3D Land and Mario 3D World. Uh, and if you haven't played the Mario 3D Land and 3D World, those are the ones that are sort of ostensibly structured like a normal side-scrolling Mario game, but the levels themselves are sort of linear 3D environments. So there is exploration and you don't move around side to side except in certain sections you really do move around in 3d space but with sort of an isometric or fixed camera and on a sort of overall linear path and i think that was you know i love those mario games um they they are not the like highest selling mario games but i there's definitely a i think uh, a, a segment of the Mario fandom that that really appreciates those ones. Like, for instance, those have done the best work with like Mario power ups in 3D has been in those games. Um, and Kirby basically takes that structure. So you have a big fun world map, and you have your big levels that are in 3D but are linear with your sort of fixed camera. Um, but with lots of exploration and things to find. They're slower paced than Mario because Kirby is a little pink butterball and he doesn't move that fast. Uh, and then the big kind of thing they've done here that makes it so special is A, the environments are so varied and imaginative and rich. This is maybe the best looking Nintendo first party exclusive on the Switch. It is a stunning looking game. You know, full 60 FPS, incredibly colorful. Uh, it has, um, the art direction is basically, it's the forgotten land because it's all these sort of human environments that look vaguely post-apocalyptic, but more in the sense of like reclaimed by nature. And so there's lots of fun animals around. So, you know, the initial environment that's like on the game's box and in the trailers is sort of like your it's like a happy version of the city they go to at the beginning of The Last of Us, where the buildings are kind of fallen down and nature has started to reclaim. And you go through there and you find like abandoned vending machines and cars and all sorts of stuff. But you eventually get to an entire world that's an abandoned amusement park with like haunted houses and stuff. There's a whole ice world. There's obviously your big fire world where the villain lives. Um, and they're all so creative and themed in such cool ways. There's an early standout level that is in a mall where there's even some branching paths and you have to use contextual clues in the environment to figure out what path will actually get you to the end of the level. And each level is a pretty long involved affair. Uh, and the other thing they've done to make it so special is they've totally supercharged the Kirby power-up mechanics that are sort of the heart of the Kirby games is the different power-ups you get. Um, now you have all of the normal power-ups better than ever. So you don't just have Sword Kirby, but Sword Kirby can evolve and all of the Kirby um, power-ups can evolve and you have bigger, crazier versions of them. You have Kirby with a sword, you have Kirby with a hammer, you have Kirby with a bomb and those all evolve. But then you have some new forms like Kirby with the two like pop guns and he can aim and like lock on to targets there's a kirby who is like a whirling dervish like the tasmanian devil there's ice kirby and the evolutions for all of those also just keep it very fresh because around the halfway point of the game those are all changing and the evolutions are pretty significant but then there is kirby's big mouth mode where kirby stretches his body to uh, lovecraftian proportions and will mm -hmm. swallow a car or will swallow a uh, vending machine and if or he's in the car all hope in things that yes. are good in this world into the bottomless void that is Kirby. 
Yes. Um, it's, it, you know, and so if you're in the car, you can drive around and ram things. If you're in the vending machine, you like waddle around on the vending machine feet and you shoot out cans and the cans will like hit enemies or destroy barriers. And then you can use the cans to heal Kirby because this is also a Kirby game that has decided to restore the element of challenge and you can die in this Kirby game. And there are some boss fights that gave me a, a bit, not, it's not a hard game. But it is a hard Kirby game. Like, that's the, it, it pushes you a little bit more, which is nice. Um, and so you actually do need health pickups at various points. Um, my favorite of the Big Mouth Mode ones, even though it's probably the simplest, is just the fucking uh, traffic cone you swallow, where you swallow a traffic cone, and then Kirby is a walking traffic cone, and he can jump and do this, like, inverted ground pound with the traffic cone and, like, kill enemies or go through the ground in it. But they're constantly adding new ones that are very creative. Uh, you add in a absolutely delightful soundtrack and some like decent like Kirby not storytelling it's not a story driven game but like the sort of like narrative diegetic kind of framing of it where you have a little town full of the waddledees that come back and the more waddledees you rescue the more they build up the town and there's a Coliseum where you can do a challenge mode and there's little mini games that the waddledees will do with you like a cooking mini game and all of that is just very delightful and fun some of the cutscenes are just crazy this definitely is a Kirby game where it felt like everyone decided to just unscrew a couple of screws in their heads and make it kind of weird uh, and I love it it is probably the best Kirby game I have played I think it is um, one of the best like 3D platformers on the Switch. I think if you have never felt super into Kirby or you felt it was maybe like lacking in substance for you in recent games, which I would understand. I liked Kirby Star Allies, but it is a pretty easy, simple game. This one is like a full, you know, the, the meat and potatoes are on this and they are, they are full. Uh, and there's a lot, of, a lot to chew on in this game. Uh, and a lot to experience, and I really loved it. I did not expect a Kirby game to sort of be this rich and this good, but it is. And again, it's also just a gorgeous, gorgeous game. I love the art direction. I love the graphics. Uh, it's really cool. Oh, I'm glad you you enjoy your weird, pervert Kirby game. <laughs> it, it was weird, just the, the bending machine in the mouth, and it's just it's for its weird perverts made that game. Yep, and I give it the biggest mouth award for... Uh, okay, never mind. Go on. Okay. Let's move on to, to number seven for me. Uh, my number seven game is Horizon Forbidden West, the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, this game, I had a hard time thinking of an award that like would help kind of like clarify specifically what it is about this game that I really love. And I ultimately landed on, I think, what, what it is. So I give this the Assassin's Creed 2 distinction for most refined sequel. Where this is like, it it's reminds me of that mid-360 generation era where you got stuff like Assassin's Creed 2 and Mass Effect 2. Where you just got these sequels that like looked at the original game and took it apart and put it all back together and, and like understood exactly what the sequel needed to be. And refined every single element of it. Um, and that's so much what Horizon Forbidden West is. Every single part of this game from Horizon Zero Dawn was taken out, examined, like, you know, they got like a file out and like shaved off a little bit of it here and like reshaped this piece and then put it back in and it fit in just that much better. And the overall shape now feels like it's what Horizon Zero Dawn was really trying to be. But that was that studio's Guerrilla Games first outing 
for a game like that, right? They had only ever made Killzone basically before that point. Um, and Horizon Forbidden West just sort of realizes the ambitions of that first game so well, particularly in its game design and structure. Um, it has such better like storytelling and character writing and particularly like character performances. And that's one of the things that I think is really remarkable about the sequel is it takes the kind of clunky implementation of the Bioware conversation model and dialogue model from the first game and really sort of puts it out as one of the best versions of that style of dialogue system in the like open world pseudo RPG game you can find like it's this and like The Witcher 3, I think are the two best examples of that kind of dialogue mechanic I've ever seen. Um, and it was a real weakness of Horizon Zero Dawn relative to the rest of that game. That in Forbidden West is one of its greatest strengths is how expressive and emotive and compelling the characters are in every single section of the game. They like the way they've built a Bioware style home base model where you go out on your mission. They give you like three main missions you can do in any order. And after you do them, you come back to your base and you get new buddies and you can go and you go around to do your rounds and talk to everybody and get more story. Like all of that element of the game is so refined. And the combat is incredibly refined top to bottom. Um, they've like really blew up the entire kind of upgrade system, which is very basic in Zero Dawn. And it was like incredibly easy to exploit in that game to get like the sort of, this is the like really powerful way to use this weapon. And once you figure that out, you're only ever going to play this game that way. Forbidden West really kind of, particularly if you're playing it on the harder difficulties, pushes you to use the entire suite of weapons in a way that means you actually have to engage fully with the combat mechanics. Um, and there's so many great weapons, particularly my favorite being the sling thrower, whatever it's called, where you have this like sling that shoots this little metal disc and then it hits the enemy, it bounces off and you have to roll and catch it. And every time you catch it, it gets more powerful. So it's like playing like wall ball or something and just bouncing this thing off of an enemy and catching it over and over again until eventually it explodes when you do it, I think four or five times. Um, and all of the different weapons have that kind of uh, level of additional creativity to it throughout the whole game. Um, and then just the design of the open world and how you navigate it, um, whether you're climbing around, whether you're mounting uh, robots and traveling that way. Um, it's just every single piece of the game. They really looked at what made that first game good. Where did that first game need improvement? How can we fix everything and make it this sort of like really refined premium level product, which is so much what Horizon Forbidden West is as well as having, like, I think for me, a very fun continuation of the story of that last game. This also gets inherited from Horizon Zero Dawn. I give this the most young adult award because that is what that last game was, was a young adult novel in video game form. And this is a young adult novel sequel in video game form where it has taken the world building from that previous thing and kind of blown it up wide open. And you go and you travel to this new area of the world and meet all these new kinds of characters, as well as taking the sci-fi elements from the previous story and pushing them to, like, I think for some people, it's absurd lengths and they don't like it. To me, they push it kind of into this somewhat absurd place, but I fucking love it. Um, this is sort of mild spoilers for the beginning, maybe like third or so of Horizon Forbidden West. But fundamentally, the premise of the game is about you fighting a group of humans who survived the apocalypse that happened like a thousand years ago or whatever, where the humanity was destroyed by the robots that we had created. But there was one pocket of humanity that actually left Earth in a spaceship, um, which you thought they all died from what you learned in the previous game, but some of them survived. They ended up colonizing another planet way out there in the galaxy. And then now they have come back with their super crazy future human robot crazy technology shit. And they're trying to recolonize the Earth and kill all the humans 
that survived through the mechanisms of the Zero Dawn thing from the plot of the original game. So they're going to like destroy all life on Earth and recolonize it as the old humans who from the old world who have returned. And they're like weird, crazy, super space alien style human technology um, in the way that that sort of like the the new era of humanity and what they have learned and grown into coming into direct conflict with these people from the old world. Um, it is definitely a little bit absurd, but in this like Star Trekky kind of way that I fucking loved. Um, and it sets up a really fun um, premise for the third game um, that I'm very excited to see them pull off. Uh, this also then gets my final award. I'm going to give Horizon Forbidden West. Um, this is something I know that Jonathan, I also saw you tweet out. Um, that was something I also noticed when I made my uh, list, which is this is a this is 2022, and there are no next gen only games on either of our list. But this gets the closest thing to a 2022 <laughs> next gen game award is Horizon Forbidden West. Um, God of War is obviously close. Horizon Forbidden West, though, for me in particular, feels like. While, yes, there is a PS4 version of the game and the PS4 version feels really nice, this does feel like they have taken a lot of advantage of the PS5 to really push the visual envelope. It is, I think, the technically most impressive game to me on that way of any game released this year and makes the best use of the PS5 hardware, particularly after they put out a couple of patches that improved the visual, like the image quality on the resolution of the performance mode even more so that when you're playing the performance mode, it's a super smooth 60 frames per second. And it also looks really, really good, um, particularly now that they kind of cleaned that up a little bit. Um, and it is it is a weird year to be a couple years now, what, like basically two years into the console's lifespan um, and to have all the next gen only games were last year. And then this year, yes. there there were, I think, technically some third-party ones. I think Gotham Knights was a next-gen-only game, but there was nothing that made any buzz in that way, and I don't think there's anything either of us played at all that was a next-gen-only game, let alone something that would get onto the top 10 list. Um, and so that is a weird thing about, about this year with the new consoles. Obviously, there's lots of games that take really good advantage of the of the PS5 hardware. For me, Horizon Forbidden West, like, specifically did the best in that category. But it was something I noticed when I put my list together. It's like, yep, we're definitely, we're only now in 2023 do I think we'll finally get to, by the end of this year, there should be some good next-gen-only games that we can talk about and for the 2023 Game of the Year list. But 2022, it kind of just wasn't there. No, I, it does seem like this is the year where everyone has decided to abandon the old consoles, because, like... We've got Jedi Survivor, the Star Wars yeah. game coming out. That's next-gen only. Final Fantasy sixteen is next-gen only, et cetera, et cetera. I think the Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two. they're not planning on having a PS4 version. Um, so most of what's coming out this year, it seems like they've finally decided to abandon those. But yes. Uh, but no, I'm glad to hear about Horizon. Uh, still have not played those games, but they, they sound fun. And uh, glad it's on your list. It's very good. My number seven... This one definitely gets an award, and I think you will agree with this award, Sean. This is the worst titled game of 2022, uh, but it is one of the best games of 2022. It's just got a bad title. It is Triangle Strategy <laughs> yes. on the Nintendo Switch. Do you agree with my award, Sean? Yeah, yeah. This is I. I've never really understood why they called it this. You know, it feels like they they you know it was a miracle that Octopath Traveler is such a cool tri uh, title because I don't think they understood why that title worked if they no. made their next one, Triangle Strategies. Like, you, did, you didn't see it. You didn't see what was good about that one. Especially because while there is a sort of three-pronged morality system in the game's narrative segments, in the actual strategy segments, because this is a tactics game, 
there is no triangle. There's no weapon triangle. There's no. There's nothing triangular about. Uh, anyway, it's a uh, it's a dumb title, but it is a great game. And this is from the basically, I guess what you would call the Tomoya Tomoyo Asano team at Square Enix. That's the producer who has headed up uh, Bravely Default and its sequels, Octopath Traveler, Triangle Strategy. Um, and with Octopath Traveler, obviously, this team has kind of ushered in what what Square Enix calls HD 2D. I think of it as kind of like 2.5D or something, but it is a modern pixel art style where they it uses unreal engine 4 and they build 3d environments but they put pixel art layers over everything and so it creates these you know fully modern games but with you know full super nes style pixel art that looks really gorgeous and obviously octopath traveler used it to great effect we've got octopath traveler 2 coming out next month there was the live alive remake which i did not get to this year and i'm i'm disappointed about that because i still want to play it at some point uh we've got that dragon quest 3 remake coming out that is using this style so it's become somewhat ubiquitous triangle strategy is a very different game though where bravely default and octopath traveler are to different extents throwbacks to super nes era uh jrpgs like the one square enix would make uh triangle strategy is a specifically it's a final fantasy tactics revival so it is a uh, tactics rpg um if you've played fire emblem you will be familiar with sort of the general thing of what a tactics game is or XCOM or something like that but this is the specific thing that final fantasy tactics did with sort of the different um levels of uh, topography on the map where you kind of are above or below people um, and stuff like that. There's no permadeath in this version, although it is still an extremely hard game. Um, but Triangle Strategy is an interesting game. I think it is absolutely brilliant. I think it has fantastic tactical gameplay, and I think it has a really stupendous story. It is the most grounded piece of high fantasy I have ever seen, to the point where I don't know if you should even really call it fantasy or just like a alternate fictional history because I feel like fantasy implies fantastical elements. Like Game of Thrones is pretty grounded, but it does have dragons and it does have ice zombies, right? And there are magicians and things like that, even if it is also focused on politics and religion and things like that. There is no magic outside of battle in Triangle Strategy. Um, there is like a mysterious religious cult that seems to have powers, but it's pretty clear by the end of the game that that is run by humans. Um, there really are no fantasy elements, and it is very, like, deeply grounded uh, historical storytelling to the point that most of this game is about difficult, wrenching political machinations where you are the heir to a kingdom. Uh, you're not the heir to a kingdom, actually. You're the, you're the heir to like a duchy, a duchy, like a, a small like area in a kingdom where you mm. have allegiance to the local king. Uh, and there are three countries that are at war over salt and iron and natural resources, uh, specifically salt and iron, but natural resources in general. And basically there is a new iron mine that has opened and something has happened in this iron mine and it sets everybody off. And now you are trying to deal with the political fallout of that. And there is a morality-based system in the game where you, to make decisions, and the story has a lot of branching paths. At some point I want to go back and play it again because I think you could... This isn't quite like Fire Emblem Three Houses where there's just a clear set of like different routes that you would play, but I think you could play this game three or four times and have very, very, very different stories depending on what paths you follow because the big choice points are where you have you and your group of, of heroes, your, you know, your units, have to vote together democratically on what the next like course of action is going to be, and you as the player can try to 
push that in different directions. But the questions you're asking are all like very difficult. Like one of the first questions in the game is one that seems pretty cut and dry. Basically it is the, your best friend who is the prince of the local, local kingdom. Um, do you sell him out and give him over to the enemy because the enemy is coming? That sounds like something you shouldn't do, but there's a whole debate about it because if you don't do it, you are not equipped to fight this oncoming army and you will probably lose your entire home and kingdom and have to go on the run. Uh, and so there are choices like that. There's a lot of in-depth political discussion and political machinations. Uh, it is very much a game for adults, not in the sense that there's a bunch of sex and violence, but just that it is dry. And I don't mean dry as a prerogative there. I find it actually very fascinating, the kind of in-depth discussion of politics that is going on in this game and like what it takes to... like rule or lead and what are the kind of choices and trade-offs and especially when you get into you know considerations of war uh it's it's genuinely interesting like a lot of this game is about a about a class of refugees who your character's kingdom has historically taken care of but which are a major political pawn in this ongoing conflict and what are you going to do for and about this class of refugees like all of that is stuff that you would not expect to see in a video game like this and it's really cool it's a really well told story with these great tactics sections what makes it kind of hard to recommend is it is so story heavy you just have to know going in that at least half if not more of the playtime of this game is listening or reading people talk and the gameplay sections, which is the tactics or some parts where you go around the map and talk to people, which is, again, kind of more talking, um, can be like hours apart from one another. I think the game I might compare it to most is 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim. Not in its crazy time-bending, like, you know, mind-fuck story mechanics, mm -hmm. but in that that is primarily an adventure game with, you know, sort of visual novel-esque storytelling that has these interludes that uh, are a, in that case, it's a strategy, like, what would you call that, a kind of SRPG sort of thing? Yeah, like, yeah, kind of like a real-time strategy game. Yeah, real-time strategy game. In this case, it's a tactics strategy game. Um, and those are sort of things that break up the general adventure game format. Um, so I think you have to know that going in. If you want a good, like, tactics game delivery service, I don't think, as good as I think it is in Triangle Strategy, that's not what you should come to this game for because so much of it is story heavy. And I do think the HD2D style can be a little limiting on how they do the storytelling because it's all through the pixel art and text and dialogue. Uh, and the dialogue is great because it's got a phenomenal cast led by Ono Kensho um, as the main character and just a lot of great Japanese stars throughout this game. It's a really well done um, vo uh, voice performance and it's almost like listening to a drama CD with a light level of illustration I think if they added something like some animated character portraits or something to give you a better sense of everyone's faces and bodies beyond just the pixel art I think it would be more fun to engage with but even with those limitations um, which are limitations that Super NES games had and whatnot. Um, so it's not like this is the only game to ever tell its story like this. Um, it is still really engaging, and I like it a lot. Uh, it is now on Windows PC as well. It did start its life as a Switch exclusive, like most of the recent Square exclusives for Switch. It's coming to other things. I would expect it to be on Xbox and PS5 sometime this year. Um, Octopath Traveler 2 is actually just going to everything all at once. It's not starting on Switch. So maybe they're switching up their um, strategy there a little bit. 
it. But Triangle Strategy, uh, really loved it. It's a very unique video game. Um, again, I, I think about what you want out of a game and think about what I've said in terms of a recommendation because I think some people would be bored to tears by this. I think for some people, it's going to be really fascinating and cool. And I do like the general um, variety with which the Asano team is doing stuff over there at Square Enix because it's really fun seeing all the different games they're coming up with. And I'm very excited for Octopath Traveler 2. That's definitely the next game I have on pre-order. So there you go. That's my number seven. Very cool. You know, you can only hope, you know, that they'll make their sequel Square Strategy and then Pentagram Quadrangle Strategy. strategy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's what, that's what we're really here for. Then eventually intersects, eventually once it gets to eight, it's like, oh, you realize, oh my God, it was always building up to Octopath Traveler the whole time. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a prequel. It's a long ago prequel. We got to get from three to eight, but yes. we'll get there. Very good. All right. So then next is my number six. So my number six game of the year is Sifu. Um, this is the, uh, like 3d action brawler game. Um, that is very Kung Fu based. So I give it my Donnie Yen's Kung Fu seal of approval because this game is purely like you want some pretty like hardcore 3D brawling. Like that is what Sifu is. Um, like for better and for worse, uh, depending on who you are. Um, it is your kind of roguelike uh, Kung Fu action game where you play someone whose uh, father slash master was killed in front of your eyes when you're very young by one of his like best students in a group of his best students. And then when you grow up, you go on a path of revenge to go try to kill the like five Kung Fu masters that murdered your father. And every time you um, die in the game, you have like this magical charm or whatever. None of this stuff is super well explained, but you have like a magical charm where you come back to life but you like are aged for like one year for every time you die and then that stacks up so there's kind of this gameplay mechanic whereby um if you die enough times eventually you become too old and you lose lose the game you have to start over from the beginning with some upgrades that carry over and that's kind of the roguelike structure of it um but purely this game is about you mastering this like really um like simple but hard to master 3d combat system um that i would equate like kind of as a mix between the kind of the simplicity of the Batman Arkham style combat with more of the complexity of something more elaborate on along the lines of a devil may cry, but doesn't have anywhere near that kind of like crazy chains of combos and 500 weapons and stuff like that. Um, it, it finds a nice middle ground of where, the, you know, you don't have a lot of different kinds of buttons or commands you have to do, but it's really about getting like all the depth out of the movement set you have available to you. Um, that has like that kind of good Kung Fu feel to it, where it does have that it's, it's basic, but there's so much depth to the combat once you start really digging your teeth into it. Um, it is very much a Sean game. Like it's very much a, a like mechanics heavy, <laughs> really kind of like trying to get your, wrap your head around, um, how these mechanics work. I do think if people want to go play it, it does have a pretty hard ramp up i don't think the game tutorializes itself particularly well and i don't think that the roguelike mechanics are that great and i don't think those are implemented super well so i think this game kind of had a fairly mixed reception or a kind of like split reception where some people really loved it some people couldn't get into it and i think that's kind of why um but i definitely really got into it because it also gets my my much vaunted the game's so nice i played it twice award um, which everything every, every year at least one game gets a word where I played at least twice. I think technically I played this through to completion three times because there are two endings and I got both the endings and then I played it through again. 
Um, and it's, I don't know if there's like a huge amount to say about it other than just like, it's fucking fun. Like if you like 3d combat, like it's hard to get much better than Sifu. And when you get into the zone and you're chaining together combos and you're countering hits and you're picking up like weapons in the environment and chucking like a beer bottle across the room at a dude and then doing a takedown on this guy and then running up to the guy you threw the beer bottle at who's stunned and do like a jumping kick into his chest. Um, and then you grab a broom and like use a broom, like a quarter staff and start beating the shit out of another dude. Um, and, and then someone throws a throwing knife across you at the room and you counter that and catch it and throw it back at him. Like there's just that real kind of flow to the combat that once you get into it is incredibly addictive. Um, and it's that thing where like the second time I played through the game, I, you know, I played the game for like a week to beat it the first time. And then when I went back through to get the, um, second ending, which you have to beat the bosses in a kind of more difficult way, basically. You have to pacify the bosses to get the second ending. That's like the good ending. I did that in like an hour and I just blasted through the whole game. And then I played it again all the way through just for fun again within like an hour, just and probably maybe even like 30 minutes that third time, just shooting my way through the whole game. Um, and that's very much the kind of game it is where once you know how to play it, you can beat that game in 30 minutes to an hour when you but when you're trying to build up the skill set to get to that point it, it's like 10 to 15 hours of gameplay to get to that point of like that level of mastery um and that to me is a sign of like a really well defined like well built well executed gameplay system around combat that has that much depth that once you once you've mastered it the whole game seems incredibly simple to you um in the rearview mirror and that is a hugely satisfying experience so again i think it, it is a it is a game that I understand why a lot of people bounced off of it, and I definitely think that it should have tutorialized itself better, um, and I definitely think that that roguelike mechanics kind of get in the way sometimes of the fun of the game in the way that like roguelike mechanics often do in games that don't kind of fully crack how to use that kind of stuff. Um, but once you get past those elements, I think Sifu is one of the best games that came out this year. Awesome. It sounds like you're even maybe a little more positive on this than you were when you talked about it on the podcast the mm -hmm. first time. Because um, I think you've played it a little more, and it's cool to hear you talk about it. Yeah, and the, I think the last time I talked about it on the podcast, I was still kind of in the midst of... It's that thing... You will know this, Jonathan, from, like, thinking about when you played, like, Sekudo and stuff. When you're in the midst of that journey yes. of, like, trying to master it, sometimes, like, you know, you're working through that frustration with both the game and yourself. And, yeah, but now that, like, it's been a while since I finished it, I can... It's easier for me to separate out what parts of it were, like, me being frustrated with the actual game stuff, which is some of the tutorializing and the roguelike stuff... And how much of it was me being frustrated with my inability to do what like I'm trying to do with the game. Um, but that's that's the fun of that kind of difficult combat heavy style game. Yeah. Awesome. Well, my number six, uh, my third Nintendo Switch exclusive in a row is Pokemon Violet. It's pretty much the same as Pokemon Scarlet. So put that one in there if you know you want to play that one. Uh, Pokemon Violet is a hard game to talk about because... Uh -huh. It's kind of busted, but I also think it's brilliant. So the thing I said when I first reviewed this on the podcast, and I still would say this, is this feels like you are playing a fairly early in development build of the best Pokemon game ever made. Uh, because I do think the fundamentals of Pokemon Violet are the best Pokemon has ever been. I think the way they have cracked the code of doing Pokemon in a big open world and having uh, sort of the player determine what path they want to follow. It's got three major quest routes with the gyms, the big like uh, Titan Pokemon you go after, and the sort of team in this game, the, which is uh, Team 
star or something I, I i don't remember the teams at this point this is one of the better teams though because of the story they have um this is like you know your team rocket variant um and you can go around the world and do those in in any order uh i have seen some people wrongly complain that the levels are set that is a good thing in a game like this that means that there are places you can go that will be a challenge for you and there are places you can go that are easier where you could go like level up lower level pokemon but it means that this is not a shitty bethesda game with totally flat difficulty curve from start to finish um it is fun to just accidentally go over the river and shit now i'm fighting a level 60 pokemon let's see if i can catch this motherfucker oh my god now i have a golduck that is 20 levels higher than any other pokemon i have that's fun um you know there is some of the best writing pokemon has ever had is in this one it is astonishing how like truly good in places the storytelling is here particularly with the main team the team star characters which is basically about a group of kids who were at the academy that is at the center of pokemon violent violet who basically were bullied and basically made a team to fight back against the bullies and wound up pulling further and further kind of out of society uh, and there's a really good story being told around that with some like shockingly good writing. Same with the Titan Pokemon quest, which is about this character and his like big dog Pokemon who is dying and you're trying to save. And oh my God, there's mortality in a Pokemon game. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, and even the main quest, this game gets anime as fuck in the most fun way near the end involving time travel and ancient and future Pokemon and... It is some truly bizarro shit near the end of this game. Uh, it's got, you know, a great set of new Pokemon, a great set of returning Pokemon. The, you know, general traversal of the world is fun. All of that. I think the gyms are creative. There's a good challenge to this game, uh, much more so than, uh, than Pokemon has been in many, many years because they had sort of sanded challenge away from Pokemon games more and more and more over the years. Some of that gets restored here. But this is a true rethinking of what a Pokemon game can be. Uh, it, you know, a mainline, you know, generational Pokemon game. And that is all really cool. Uh, it also has, I think, probably, God, looking at this list, maybe my favorite video game soundtrack of this year. Certainly an original soundtrack, not something from a remake. Um, it is one of the best Pokemon soundtracks. There are so many absolute bops here. Uh, it, it's, it slaps from start to finish. I love uh, how crazy the music is in places. Um, so all of that is great. The problem is this game is just clearly and like visibly unfinished mm -hmm. to be fair i will say it is not unfinished in the sense of like a cyberpunk 2077 where they never figured out what was supposed to be fun about the game and it's it was bugged to the point where you couldn't actually progress in it i never had any game breaking bugs in violet i think i only had one crash during my entire time with it which was like 50 hours um i never had anything that blocked my progression or made me lose progress or anything like that um but it does look like shit it looks completely unfinished there are basically no textures there are entire parts of the world like mountain ranges where it feels like they didn't really nail down the geography there's things like the big pokemon that you ride on through the entire game which for me was miraiden the purple one from violet uh i really love miraiden he's a very fun character to be riding around on but they didn't figure out the physics on him so he just jumps in the air like the goat from goat simulator and it's very funny to see uh and all of that is silly and it definitely you know this is a switch game that i would not put on your tv it does not hold no. up well to tv scrutiny there are some games on switch that are like that but usually i will say it's the ones that are ports of current gen 
or last-gen games. Like, you probably don't want to put the Witcher 3 Switch version on your TV, but Witcher 3 Switch version handheld is a perfectly respectable version of Witcher 3, and that's what it's there for, right? It's not there to be on your TV. This is a Switch-exclusive game. Switch-exclusives usually look pretty good. Nintendo has a pretty high level of production values, generally speaking. Uh, game Freak does not all the time. And Pokemon Violet, it's just... It's just obviously and manifestly unfinished on a visual level. And if that is something that is really going to bother you, maybe stay away. But if you can get past that, if that's not something you super care about, if you can use your imagination around the edges, uh-huh. if, you don't, if you don't care about every other NPC in the game walking at two to six frames per second, God. like they're in a little slideshow, yeah. all of that stuff... I really, I really cannot stress enough. I fell in love with this game. I wish I could put it higher. I definitely, there were drafts of this list where I had it higher and it, it kind of came down to just, it is unfinished. There is kind of a cap on how high I can put it. But I will say, I believe, looking at my past list, I think this is the highest I've had a Pokemon game on my top 10 list uh, in the years we've been doing this. And I really do love it. I do think at its core, it is as good as Pokemon has been since the early days of Gen 1, Gen 2. Um, And there is a lot to fall in love with here. There's so much that is rich about this experience. This is so much, I think, the evolution of Pokemon that that people have been asking for. And I I wish Game Freak had let them spend another year developing it Mm -hmm. because it needed it. It just needed that time in the oven. They, They finished... What is most important about this game, but they did not get it polished, and that is too bad. Um, and I don't blame the developers for that. I blame whatever combination of Game Freak and Nintendo decided, nope, we need a second Pokemon game this year. We just need a little more money. Uh, but I still love it. You know, the heart wants what it wants, and I, I love my Pokemon Violet. Yeah, it's a yeah, and we talked about that game a lot in the podcast when you were originally playing through it and that whole yeah. the weird you know, it, it happens, you know, every once in a while as you just get that game where you're like, I mean, for me, like Sonic Frontiers is definitely like that to that full extent. But there's definitely a like, man, this game is fucking rough around the edges. This is not this is not Horizon Forbidden West. This is not your premium triple right. A Sony product where it like feels like, you know, you could put this thing on display in a fucking museum and it's just like perfect um, in terms of its presentation, it's it's very rough around the edges, and Pokemon is about as rough around the edges a video game can be. <laughs> it's what it feels like, um, and yeah. still technically have been a, re- a released project. Yeah. So again, I again, it's 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 rough around the edges, with the exception of it did not like break for me. It did not, mm-hmm. you know, erase my file or crash my switch and wipe stuff, you know, stuff like that. Um, but it is rough. But that's my number six. Sean, what is your number five? My number five is a game that I've... I, I, I feel morally and ethically compromised that I've put this on my list, but it is what it is. This is not a video game. I'm going to tell you right now. In my heart of hearts, I know this is not a video game. It's just it's not. It, but it, it's really fucking good. It's Mahosuke no Yoru or Witch on the Holy Night. It's a visual novel. Or it's technically a connect novel, I think is what we call these. It's probably not freely a video game, but people call it video games. So I'm going to put it on my list. This gets my The Genre Dicks recognition for really honestly <laughs> probably not being a video game, but I'm putting it on the list anyways. Um, we're going to do a whole podcast that's going to be on Witch on the Holy Night slash Mahotsukai no Yoru um, for our Japanimation animation season two, talking about UFO Table Moon Works. 
Japanimation um, Station. It's not called Japanimation Animation. Yes, Japanimation Station. Thank you. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Yes, it, it's and so yeah, like I've always had a weird struggle with the visual novel category of video games because it, it exists in this weird space where there are some visual novels that are obviously video games. And there's some visual novels that, to me, are obviously not video games. Mahot Sky no Yoru is about as not a video game a visual novel can be, um, in that it is, again, it's what is sometimes referred to as a kinetic novel in English. I don't know where that terminology originally comes from, um, because it doesn't, to me, describe anything about this specific subgenre of visual novels. But a kinetic novel is used to refer to a visual novel that has no choices. So all it is is a piece of literature that has... Um, music and visual elements that you play through a computer or a console or whatever kind of technical device you can read it through. Um, and then in this case also has voice acting, but it does not have any gameplay elements. Um, Witch on the Holy Night does have one optional scenario that does include um, text choices, but other than that, there are no choices in the game. It just plays um, and you just read through it. So it is more to me... I, I would categorize it as interactive fiction, as a subcategory of literature that exists in the world of literature, and not really as a video game. And it's something that makes this fucking impossible to rank on this list. Like, really well and truly, I could very easily justify this actually being my number one. Um, but I also can't, because, because it's like, it's not fair to compare it to other games. Like, I might as well have put a movie on this list, because... It's like just not really a video game. It's a piece of literature, and I appreciate it and love it as a piece of literature that has these presentational elements of a visual novel that enhance it. Um, for people who don't know anything about Witch on the Holy Night, just like the basics of it um, is it is a, a remaster of a 2012 visual novel that is a release based on an early draft novel that Kinoko Nasu, the writer for Fate's Day Night, wrote um, in the, in 1996, that was never released. Um, it was like kind of a, the root of a lot of his kind of fictional ideas that appeared in a lot of the other visual novels and things that he had worked on over the years. And then eventually in 2012, Type Moon put out an actual visual novel kind of adaptation of that original draft of that novel. Um, and then in 2022, they did a remaster of it, putting it out on PS4 and Switch. Uh, that updated the resolution of all the artwork and then added voice acting. Um, and then it was localized and released in English, which is the only time, or first and so far only time that that has happened for any Type Moon visual novel. And Type Moon has released, like, generally speaking, it, like the most acclaimed and some of the most successful visual novels ever between Tsukihime and particularly Fates Day Night. Um, and so it is awesome that this finally came out in English. It is a fucking absolute masterwork. It is one of the best visual novels I have ever played. It is the best visual novel I have ever played in terms of its technical presentation. Um, the artwork is gorgeous. Um, but the way the artwork is implemented is fucking mind-blowing to me. Like, it is... There is an ungodly amount of art in Mahotsukai no Yoru. There is, like, something like, I think, 24 pages in the archive for the CGs for a visual novel that is about 25 hours long, which is fucking crazy. There is so much art in this game. It is implemented so well with having every single scene uses 
um, the character arts and into the character art and integrates it into the background in these really creative ways that create kind of dynamic shots. They use sort of like, quote unquote, a moving camera to have split shots where character models or elements of the image will move or pan while you're reading the text that creates a dynamic visual presentation that I've never really seen in another visual novel. Um, and it's a level of consistent presentational quality that exists throughout the entire game that, again, is about a 25 to 30 hour long visual novel, which is long in the scope of entertainment, but not long in the scope of visual novels. It's a medium length visual novel, I would think I'd categorize it as. Um, but that level of sort of dense, high quality presentation, it's just unmatched. Even Tsukihime, the one that came out last year, that remake, is not to this level of like the density and the focus of that every single scene feels like it has so much like thought and care put into how it's presented. Mahotsukai no Yodo is just kind of on another level in that respect. And then the story is incredible. Um, it is if you like Fate Stay Night or you like Tsukihime or any of the Type Moon stuff, this is an absolute must play. I think it is like an incredible piece of kind of modern fantasy fiction that is so much about this kind of intersection between civilization and nature and magic in the way that magic, both in this world, literally magic, which exists, and also figurative or symbolic magic exists at the intersection of these two realms between nature and human civilization. That is also very intentionally set at the end of the bubble economy in Japan in 1989 um, in a like small town that has kind of been built more or less off the back of this like booming economy um, in the middle of this kind of hilly, wooded country. Um, and then this girl who is a mage or a witch um, who meets a boy who lived in the mountains and is coming down to civilization and encountering human civilization like electricity and things like that for the first time. It's about the relationship between those two characters. And it's an incredible story that is deeply touching. Um, and I, I blew through this game. I played it through it in about a week, which is a lot. Uh, this was like my first week of winter break was just playing Mahotsukai no Yoru. I actually finished it on Christmas night, which is when the game ends, which felt like perfect. That's the holy night of the witch on the holy night. Um, and it, it's a, an amazing, amazing visual novel. Is it a video game? Probably not. It has no gameplay. There's nothing in it that you would consider gameplay outside of the text choices in one optional scenario. Um, it very much is a piece of literature, which makes it something I feel unfair to rank on this list next to other games, which is why I put it at number five. Because it was just like, I don't want to take away from other video games their place on a video game list because I put a book on here, basically, um, which is which is in my heart of hearts what I feel putting Mahotsukai no Yoru. Again, it's not like me saying it's not a video game. It's not a judgment quality either for video games or for this visual novel. It's just in my mind, they are, they are separate categories. Um, but for most people would consider this a video game. So I've, I'm putting it on my list. But I'm going to. I, I was very kind of cautious in my ranking and put it at number five, so that other games that are really games that came out this year that are doing things with gameplay get to be more heavily featured on the 2022 games of the year list, which seems to me only fair. That's fair. You know, it is on my list. It is higher on my list. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. I will say I had a similar reservation as you, Sean. But at the same time, look, whatever categorization we want to give it. It is a piece of software that you can only access on dedicated video game consoles, the Nintendo Switch and the PlayStation 4. Uh, you buy it in a video game store. 
there's no other top 10 list I'm aware of you would put it on. You wouldn't put it on your top 10 movies of the year. You you could, I guess, argue putting it on your top 10 books of the year. Yes. But even then, I think you would get pushback uh, because it is different than other You'd books. You'd get pushback from those people, but not from me. Not from you. Okay. That's fine. Uh, but you know what? I'm making a top 10 video games of the year list. This is on my Nintendo Switch next to several other games on my list. So I'm going with God and I'm just going to do it. Uh, and, and that's fine. And there is a bigger definitional debate here that you and I are not going to solve and probably will never be solved, uh, but is an interesting definitional debate that I also think opens up certain ontological discussions about the boundaries of video games in general, because there's all, there's all sorts of (laughs) video games that are variously gamey uh which on the holy night is minimally gamey you use the buttons to advance text and that's it um you but it use is... the buttons to play my 4k blu-ray citizen kane on my ps5 i can press the x button sure. to start you... that shit man <laughs> fair enough video game. F- fair enough but uh you know it's on our lists for because it is br- it is that brilliant and you know fuck it it close enough all right my number five is kind of the opposite of Witch on the Holy Night in that it is a video at game ass video game. There's nothing not video game in it, and that is Vampire Survivors. Let me stop uh, you there right, right now, Jonathan, because my number four is Vampire Survivors. So we can just see, you hit these both out at the same time. Yes, Vampire Survivors. You can play it on PC. You can play it on Mac. You can play it on Linux. Uh, there is a phone port now as well. I, I wouldn't maybe recommend that. I believe it is also it. on Game Pass. Now, oh, they did add it. They did, didn't yes. they? Yes. If you don't want to pay the like two dollars to yes. get Vampire Survivors, it's about the funniest game you could possibly put on Game Pass. Yes, Vampire Survivors is as simple in terms of input as video games get, and it is as complex in the meta as video games get, which I love. It is such a cool combination of things because the actual gameplay of Vampire Survivors is so simple it could work on an Atari joystick. All you need is directional input and one button to make confirmations once in a while. But you move your... It is a roguelike with multiple levels. You go in, you have a character selection. At the beginning, it's just a few. You unlock dozens of characters by the end. And you go in uh, and you move your character and all of your abilities are on auto cooldowns and then they fire themselves. So all you are doing is moving your character around and occasionally confirming inputs when you interact with the random elements of the roguelike structure, like unlocking new weapons and power-ups. Uh, But within that, there is a ludicrous amount of depth and replayability uh, to this. Like, as a piece of video game, like, engineering and game design, it is so fascinating to me. And I got fucking obsessed with this game. One thing that's funny is, so I got bitten by the Vampire Survivors bug in early December. And then I went and traveled to Portland, Oregon, uh, where my brother uh, lives. And I spent the holidays with with him. Um, And... I got him into this because I said, Thomas, you should check out this Vampire Survivors game. And I played a little for him and then he played a little bit of it on my computer. And then uh, I bought it for him uh, because I was like, this is a cheap gift I can get Thomas because it's like $4. Um, And I got him the game on Steam and then he started playing it. uh, And then we were both eventually like our bonding time is we would put on something on the TV, like an episode of It's Always Sunny or something like that, or a YouTube video essay, and then we would both just play the shit out of Vampire Survivors for like two hours at a time. Uh, And it is so addictive, and there are so many secrets in it, and there's so many things you unlock 
um, new characters and new weapons and new powers and these weapons all evolve and they combine and there's so many ways to tackle the different scenarios and uh, I played literally everything you can do in Vampire Survivors. I got the DLC. I have every single achievement on Steam. I have every single unlock in the game. I have the collection finished. I have done everything the developers have told me is possible to do in Vampire Survivors. I think I have 60 hours in it on Steam. Um, and as soon as they release more DLC, I will be back. It is such a brilliant burst of concentrated video game design. Uh, roguelikes are something I like to begin with. I think it's a genre much like sort of the Souls-like or Fire Emblem Tactics kind of thing that is just kind of my version of video game crack that I am susceptible to. But uh, this is such a cool implementation of it. It is so simple. It is the most indie-ass indie game. Uh, and I love it. I love it exists. I love it's like $5. I love what a sensation it became. Um, I, I love just seeing people talk about it and come up with strategies. It is such a cool game. Um, and I, I just want to say my top five was fucking competitive. And it was hard for me to put this as relatively low as number five because I adore this game. But you'll see this top five is stacked. This was a good year. Um, but man, this game rocks. Yeah, for me with Vampire Survivors, I originally had it at um, number five below uh, Witch on the Holy Night. And then I was like, but Vampire Survivors created a genre effectively. And it's yes. like, it, it, was one of the, it was one of those things where it's just like, it's just not fair. It's just not fair to, you know, there's, you couldn't have two. Like, this is why I feel like Mahotsukai no Yoda doesn't belong on the list. It's like, how do you rank Vampire Survivors and Witch on the Holy Night next to each other. Like, how do you compare these two things? They're completely unlike. They have no similarities whatsoever, other than that they can both be played on the same devices. Um, but yes, Vampire Survivors is fucking amazing. And I had an interesting journey with it because if you remember, uh, listeners of the podcast, I talked about it, I think like February or March this year, like, because I got it pretty early. I played it because like when it was really early, like I think the first time I played it, it only had two levels. Like the library level was as much was in the game. Um, and I played probably maybe like five to 10 hours of that version and liked it, but like hit my limit with it, right? Where with Vampire Survivors, once you kind of figure out the combination of weapons and things like that, that can win the game. Like you can win the game every single time. Like eventually it like winning the 50, the like surviving the 30 minutes of vampire survivors can becomes a solved problem eventually. Um, which is one of the things that kind of sets it apart from hollow cure. And when there were only those two levels, it was like, well, I'm done. Like there's like nothing else to be done. And then I didn't play it for most of the year. And then in like November or something, or maybe December, early December, I came back to it and played the like 1.0 plus fully released version with the DLC and everything. And it blew my fucking mind how much more was in the game because, <laughs> because it's like, it's a different video game now than it was when I originally played it. Cause when I originally played it, the game was just surviving those 30 minutes and that was it. And it's like, yeah, you could unlock some new characters and some new weapons. There's like a little bit of unlockables, but really vampire survivors as a game is about to me, the meta game is about the like, figuring out how to unlock everything and discovering all the secrets and following the breadcrumb trails and, you know, trying to have these runs where it's not just surviving the 30 minutes. Like I want to get all of these items that are in the level and combine them together and you would and put all that to unlock all these other things so I can lock the next level, the next character, this and that, and the next weapon. 
um, and you're following all of that metagame structure, and that's the thing that I think really makes it brilliant. The minute-to-minute gameplay in the actual runs is very fun and kind of genius from a game design perspective and how simple but deceptively complex it is. But then the metagame structure they built on top of it is what makes Vampire Survivors ultimately one of the best games. And easily, I think, you know, any list that didn't put it in the top 10 or even in like the top five for games this year, I think is doing something wrong because Vampire Survivors is like, I think, kind of a game changer, really. Um, in terms of awards, I give it the uh, the best ass game award, which this term, I don't know if Jeff Gersman invented this term, but it's where I heard Jeff Gersman, formerly of Giant Bomb, I listened to, heard him on the podcast refer to these as auto shooter survival games or ass games. Um, and this is <laughs> of the auto shooter survival games that came out this year. Vampire Survivors, I think, is the best one. So it gets my best ass game award. That's A-S-S, all in caps. Um, and then I also give it my Medal of Nostalgia for making me reminisce about playing browser games on the school computers. Because that's what this game, when I first played it, it's what attracted me to it. When I first saw some clips online, it, it has this janky quality where it's like art that looks like it's just ripped straight out of Castlevania NES games and shit like that. Um, that feels like you, the kind of game you would stumble upon on Newgrounds or like albinoblacksheep.com or some weird shit that you're not really supposed to be on in the school computers in the computer lab in like middle school or something. Um, and and you just get way into it and like tower defense games and all that kind of stuff that was really popular that had the only controls were like the WASD keys or the mouse and that was it. Um, and, you could ju- and you just played them for fucking hours Vampire Survivors is like the apotheosis of that kind of game to this like ultimate level that is kind of crazy, um, but feels perfect. Um, so yeah, Vampire Survivors, what an what an amazing game, and I'm I'm very excited to see like stuff like Hollow Cure that builds off the foundation of Vampire Survivors and continues to explore the potential of this like weird genre of ass game that now exists. Yeah, we're going to be talking about this game for for years because it has so clearly had a, a, a major impact on the medium. I love that about it. I love that you can get enough like crazy effects going on in this game that it becomes a legitimate like seizure warning for me <laughs> of like I do not have any epileptic like tendencies, uh, but there are still like times where I have to like look away and just kind of be working at Wazda and letting the character do his own thing because there's so many flashes on screen. It has a similar appeal to me as like a fucking run in Diablo or something where like you just go crazy, but they really load it up here. Uh, I love that this is a fucking simple 2D pixel art game that you can throw so much on screen, it'll make your computer chug a little bit. Like I love that it'll do that. It's crazy. Um, it's, it's an amazing game. Love it to death. So that's your number four, right? Yes. And my number five, which means nine number four. This is a remake, but I think it is a substantial enough remake that I put it on here. This is Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII Reunion. I played it on Switch, but it's also on all the systems. Go play it wherever you want. Um, this is my new favorite Final Fantasy game. And like, I have no compulsions about saying that. I think... You know, my ultimate maybe favorite story in Final Fantasy is and soundtrack and stuff is going to be Seven. The Seven World is my favorite thing in Final Fantasy. Uh, but I think when you tie together the gameplay and the pace and everything, Crisis Core is a goddamn near perfect game. And the remake, Final Fa- the Crisis Core Reunion, is a really cool remake in that I think they have done the right things to make this 
modern and and playable on modern hardware and look good the visuals are now in line with final fantasy 7 remake which whatever issues you and i had with that game it looked great you know and, and this looks great as well and then but like having all of that but not messing clearly with the heart of what crisis core was on psp which i never got that deep into you did sean and you sang its praises when we talked about final fantasy 7 a couple years ago but i had never played the whole thing um, and I'm kind of glad I waited because this version of it is such a great, again, expansion while maintaining the core of it. Like this is still a handheld game at its heart, which is part of why I enjoyed playing it on Switch so much. I think on a structural level, this game nails the thing that Final Fantasy VII Remake failed at most, which is that Final Fantasy VII Remake tells this little slice of the original Final Fantasy VII story. So the story is pretty minimal and linear. But it also wants to be a big 40-hour JRPG. So, well, how do you solve that? Cloud's going to fall down a hole several times in this game and do a dungeon so you can play the game. Because there's nowhere else in the story to knock down a wall and have that happen. Or, when Aerith gets kidnapped at the end of Final Fantasy VII Remake, yeah, this is actually where the game is going to be most open for you to go do other stuff, even though your friend has been kidnapped. Um... And Crisis Core, which tells a similarly linear story, although it's a bigger story taking place over like a decade's worth of time, um, what it does is it basically divides the game in two, where you have your main linear story, where you're on a, a set path with cutscenes and all that good stuff, and then it has this whole mission subsystem where you go into the menu and you just have a giant list of these little bite-sized missions that were very clearly designed for the PSP era to sort of play on the go and work translate to the Nintendo Switch beautifully for me. Um, and that is where you get to just experiment with what is, I think, cl clearly and unambiguously to me the best Final Fantasy combat system. It's absolutely brilliant. And I know in the original PSP version, it was sort of a mix of menu-based stuff and actually moving around on the map, right? Um, um, yeah, I mean, you, you moved around on the map um, and you had commands at the bottom of the screen with like a long list of commands with all of your different right. like, materia and that kind of stuff. Yes. And what they've done for this remake is they've made all of, they've hyperkeyed all of that. So everything is mapped onto your controller and there's no menu you are interfacing with during combat. And it is so snappy and it is so fast. You are, you are Zax or Zach in English. I like he's got an S on the end of his name in Japanese. Um, but you're Zax and there's no other party members. You have your big dumb sword and you go in and you have, you can use the Y button. I'm using switch controls here. So if you have a different controller, just adapt it for yourself. But use the Y button and you you can use the sword and hit people with the sword. You use R1 and you can dodge, the, or not dodge things, but you can um, block and do guarding. You use the B button to do a dodge roll. And then you hold down L1 and then you have all of your four face buttons plus R1 and R2 are your different materia commands. So that's where you have your, and you have two modes of those. You have your MP, which gives you spells, and you have your AP, which gives you sort of physical actions. And you can divide and conquer on that. And the whole materia system, which is borrowed from Final Fantasy VII but vastly improved here, is all of your spells and actions. And you can assign those however you want. And so basically you build your entire loadout and then you go into combat and you use it. And it means the combat is just incredibly free and creative and fast. And there is absolutely no friction anywhere to kind of like slow you down or mess you up. I went back into, after I finished this game, I played the first hour or so of Final Fantasy VII Remake again on the PS5. And I like the combat in that game, but... 
I actually, th- I thought after playing Crisis Core, I would like it more. And I liked it less because that game still has all these menus that you kind of get bogged down in. And I think is a little awkward to be playing this full 3D game, but there's also kind of a menu component. And I think the way Reunion kind of breaks the code and figures out how to do it all with buttons in real time with all of this depth is really incredible because the secret sauce of this game in gameplay sense is the materia system. Yeah. And you have all of your material, you can upgrade them. There is a leveling component to the game, but more important is you use your items, you use your materia, and the more you use them, the higher level they get. And then you can also fuse your materia and you can come up with new materia that sometimes have very surprising effects and you can mix them in surprising ways. And like the number of builds you can make and the number of sort of ways you can build Zacks out for different encounters is practically infinite. There is a, it's kind of like Vampire Survivors in that sense of the meta of like building Zacks is incredibly deep. And I was still discovering all the way to the end of the game new, exciting, creative things I could do with it. And then you go in and the combat is so fun. It's so snappy. It's so fast. And so on a gameplay level, I think it's just absolutely brilliant. But then it is also just a tremendous story because what Crisis Core is is an expansion of backstory that is in the original Final Fantasy VII seen through the eyes of Zax, who is a fairly minor character in VII, but a very important one because... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to spoil Final Fantasy VII, but this is like Rosebud being the sled in Citizen Kane. This is an old-ass mm-hmm. spoiler. Cloud is not the person he says he is. Cloud has the memories of Zack Fair, who was the actual soldier first class who had the Buster Sword. And this is the story of Zack that ends with his sacrifice where he dies so that Cloud can live, and then Cloud goes into Midgar. And every inch of this story is fascinating and fun and some of it is silly like the big villain Genesis who is constantly quoting this world's Uh version of Shakespeare which I love but it is also so heartfelt and at the heart of all of this you have Zax who is just the best character I think in all of Final Fantasy and I don't think it's even particularly close it is an incredible piece of characterization he is this person who is full of life and vitality and dreams and he just loves to kind of be alive and meet people, but he also has this surprising amount of vulnerability, and it is all brought to life by Kenichi Suzumura, who is an actor I love. I know you love Sean. We're going to talk about him a lot in season two of Japanimation Station because he's one of the main characters in Kara no Kyokai, and I think this is the best role I've ever heard him in. He is so phenomenal in this game, particularly I know they've there's more voice acting in this one than there was in the PSP version, and it is... Such a stupendous performance. There are lines he has down the home stretch of this that uh, just te- just made the waterworks come out. He is unbelievable. It is one of the best performances I've ever heard in a video game. Um, and the final hours of this thing are just one of the most methodical pieces of heart-wrenching storytelling I've ever seen. One of the mechanics that is so fun and silly in this game mm-hmm. is this thing called the... I don't even remember the acronym for it. It's like... DMV, but it's not DMV. That's the Department of Motor Vehicles, but it's something like that. And it is this fucking, but it's the it's the slot machine. You have a slot machine running in the upper left corner of your game throughout every battle, and it has two kinds of slots. It has numbers, and it has character faces, and when the character faces match, you get to use, that's where the uh, limit breaks come in from Final Fantasy VII, but they're all things Zax has learned from other people. So you have Sephiroth's Octo Slash, or you have Cloud's um, Meteor Slash, or things like that. 
um, and you use all of those. And so when those line up, Zax has memories of these people that he then uses in battle. And then the numbers will align in different ways and give you various bonuses. And I think it's one of the coolest little things I've ever seen in an RPG. But then the ending of this game, which Red Dead Redemption would steal three years later yes. in 2010, is better than the end of Red Dead Redemption because mm-hmm. of how it brings in that game mechanic. And Zach's ending is represented through that wheel, that wheel of characters and memories coming into play um, and great cutscene direction and great use of the battle system. And it is, I think, up there with Persona 3 as one of the best video game endings I have ever seen. Um, I love this game to death, warts and all, because this is a portable-ass game that has its weird, fun... It's constantly swinging at the fences in the way these this era of PSP games would, and not everything about it works 100%, but man, it is addictive to play, and it is deceptively rich, and it has this absolutely incredible story, and this remake is such a good presentation of it. Um, I could not love Crisis Core anymore if I tried. God, this is a great game. Yeah, I'm glad that you that this came out so you like people have an opportunity to play it because yeah, like I'm with you. Like it, it is it is probably my favorite Final Fantasy game also. Um and it's it's very nice that like you know, because it was just hard to access for a very long time. I mean, the only way I played it was by emulating it, you know. Um because so, on the Vita you you couldn't actually play it because yes. it was not on the PSP download store. You could only use the actual UMD disc to play it. So it had been not accessible for a long time. Yeah, and it's just a phenomenal game. And anyone who has any affection for Final Fantasy VII like owes it to themselves to play Crisis Core. And yes, in particular, it is that the ending is amazing. The way it uses all the gameplay mechanics it's been sort of developing throughout the game in the background to deliver this like absolute emotional gut punch. Jonathan, you now understand why, like to me, the notion of ever using any weapon other than the Buster Sword for Cloud in Final Fantasy yes. VII Remake is just, like, insane. It's certifiably insane. The best thing they did in Final Fantasy VII Remake, the smartest design choice, was that they made it so that any weapon is viable for the whole game, so you can just use the Buster Sword in Cloud. Because that's, that is Zax's proof that he was alive. You know, that's his last yes. big line. He is like, what do you know, Ikta Akashida. And he gives it to Cloud, and it's like... How could you not use this sword? What, like, monster? Like, he's going to put this in my fucking inventory. Um, this is, like, everything. Um, yeah, it's it's just an all-timer. And it is, you know, while the story stuff is all amazing, it is also, I'm glad you pointed out, this is the only time the Materia shit has ever been good in Final, in a Final Fantasy VII game. It's, yes. it's terrible in the original Final Fantasy VII. Materia is terrible in Final Fantasy VII Remake. It's like a weird, bad, restrictive system that makes everything about the combat worse than if they just did a more standard level in the skill system. Um, whereas Crisis Core, it's like the whole engine that makes the combat work is this addictive, like leveling up your Materia, infusing it together. Um, it's very much, it, it's like a Persona game or like Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth in that like you're like figuring out ways to almost like break the combat by combining these things together and getting these like ridiculously powerful abilities and stuff by fusing them. Um, and it's like, it's weird to me that that is the only, you know, of, of all the games that they've used in Materia, this is like the only one that actually found like a smart way to use that mechanic and that like concept in a Final Fantasy VII game. 
And I, I'm disappointed that Remake didn't steal more from yes. this game because there's more they could have taken and they should have because this so cracked the code. Honestly, now that I've played this and, and Final Fantasy XV, y'all know I love that one as well, those are two of the three Final Fantasy games that Hajime Tabata directed. Mm-hmm. And the third one is Final Fantasy Type-0, which I've never played, but I did just buy a PS4 copy on eBay the other day because I think, I think I'm very in sync with Hajime Tabata's vision of Final Fantasy, and I want to play that one as well. Um, uh, one other thing to say is the soundtrack to this game is killer. Oh, God, it's, yes. You know, it uses a lot of the Final Fantasy VII music, but then all the original music is very different from Final Fantasy VII music. It's really guitar-driven. It fucking rocks out. Uh, it very much, I think, exemplifies Zack's entire personality. Um, it's a tremendous soundtrack. Yeah, and it has my best or my favorite version of Eris' theme is in... Yeah. on that and that's like the acoustic guitar version of her theme which is amazing yes yeah it also does need you know you, you talked about Kenji Suzumura it just needs to be said because I remember when this came out I saw a bunch of people like passing around clips on Twitter of like the English dub and people it was, they did a new English dub for this version of the game because there's some new voice actings um, and so I think most if not all the actors for the English dub are different than the original one but it's like it's for remake remake recast everyone in English. So yeah. this is the remake cast. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, you know, I don't want to be too much of a like Japanese voice cast premise kind of thing with like, it's only ever you can only ever play stuff with the Japanese voice cast because there's lots of English dub stuff I like. And I think like it's totally fine. Generally speaking, this is one where it's like it hurts my heart to see people play this one yes. with the English dub, mostly because like as everyone identifies when they're looking at the English dub, it's goofy in the wrong ways. Like Crisis Core is goofy. Like Zax is a fairly goofy character a lot of the time, though it also is like dead, gets very serious in lots of places like near the end. Um, but like the English dub just turns it as often happens with these kinds of things into too much of a Saturday morning cartoon. And that's so much the vibe. And it's just like awkward and it doesn't play well. Um, in terms of like how it it doesn't sell the tone of the world or anything. Um, and it's just such a phenomenal voice cast and such great performances in Japanese that it, it's like I just really can't fathom playing this one with the English cast. This is not a like persona situation where I think, you know, if you want to play persona with the English cast, like, great. Yeah, they're fucking awesome. And they did a really good job here. Mm, no, no, you really need to play this with the Japanese voices. If for nothing else, then you just need to appreciate, you know, any anything where you get Suzumi Kenichi and his real world wife, Sakamoto Maya, opposite yes. each other as a romantic couple, which is like a thousand different video games and anime. <laughs> like, how do you not play this? Like, you got to get Zax and Aerith, who are actually voice actors are actually married in real life. And it's like, how the fuck did this happen through their whole career? And that chemistry, like, this is one of their canonical works together. Like, this yes. is some of the best stuff they've done as a couple uh, in in voice acting. Um, it's, yeah, you have to play this in Japanese. It's phenomenal. I'm glad that it is easily accessible, that you don't have to do an undub patch anymore. Um, but you, you haven't played this version yet, right, Sean? No, no, I've only played okay. the emulated PSP version. Yeah, well, I'm excited to see you play this because it's, it's like, I honestly might get it on PS5 and play it again just because it is gorgeous. And I love playing it on Switch. Uh, and I should say the Switch port is really good. It's actually very impressive for what is a graphically brand new Unreal Engine 4 game. Has very few graphical sacrifices on Switch. Uh, it's it's like resolution and frame rate. But all of the stuff is there in the game. Like the textures are much better than you typically see on Switch ports. Um, but still like the... I know the PS5 is like full 4K60. And this is such a nice looking game. I kind of want to see it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely awesome. need to check out this version. 
So that's my number four. All right, home stretch, Sean. What's your number three? All right, my number three. I think the the top three is not going to be surprising to anybody at all, really. Um, my number three is God of War Ragnarok. Or my God number three is also God of War Ragnarok. I wonder if our top two are the same. It depends on. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. They, but, they definitely aren't. I okay. actually don't know what your number two is. But my number you three know, is God of. Think about it for a second, Jonathan. You know what my number two. is. I must be blanking on something. I have well, to... It's going to okay. be the most obvious thing in the world when we get to it. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, but that, that tells me that the number two is definitely not the same then. Um, yes. So God of War Ragnarok, it, it is both of our number threes. Um, we did a whole big-ass podcast on this, so I don't know if we need to spend a lot of time breaking down why God of War Ragnarok is so good. Um, it's just so fucking good. I mean, it's, it's a little bit similar to what I was saying with Rise and Forbidden West in terms of, like... They really looked at that last game and kind of broke down a lot of um, what worked and what didn't. But also, I think specifically for this one, it is more, as we talked about on that podcast, this game has like a really clear vision of its own that I think you is not as apparent early on. But the deeper you get in, the more clear it is, is like, no, this is its own game. Like it's trying to tell its own style of story. It's doing its own things with its cast of characters and its kind of vision for itself. Um, and the deeper you get into the game, the stronger and stronger that vision becomes until it's like overwhelming by the end, you know, and it's it's the the cumulative impact of this game when you get to the very end is just like really, truly jaw dropping. And the like last few hours of this game, I've like been thinking about on and off since I finished it in particular, like the last shot of Atreus is and the last like the last big shot of Kratos in the near the end. Um, where he sort of gets to see a vision of what his future could potentially be. Um, like, I, those moments have still, like, lived with me since we played the game and since we recorded that podcast, because I think this is a truly phenomenal achievement of game design and storytelling. Yeah, it's a full-on masterpiece. I think this is, this is to God of War what, you know, Gravity Rush 2 was to Gravity Rush. It is, mm-hmm. we're not doing a series of sequels. We are leaving absolutely everything on the field. We are putting everything out there that there is to put out there in one big, beautiful, passionate, earnest, brilliantly designed, endlessly polished game. Uh, And it is about as perfect as this kind of thing is. I think it is in contention for the title of best Sony exclusive that you can find out there. Uh, It's certainly one of the best. Um, It's one of the best games on the PS4 or PS5. Uh, again, we do have a whole podcast. It's episode 454 from December 6th, 2022. Our, uh, that was actually our finale first. So it's only been two episodes of the yes. Weekly Stuff podcast since we did that. Uh, so go listen to that. I will, uh, one thing, two things I will throw shout outs to. Uh, Christopher Judge, just again. Yes. Absolute Hall of Fame. One of the best. And I think for my money, maybe the best English language video game performance I've ever heard uh, and seen Mm, because the motion capture and what the animators do with that is also tremendous with Kratos. Uh, And then that fucking soundtrack by Bear McCreary. You know, I listened to some of it over the break again. And like that's I think Bear McCreary's work for the God of War games is about as close as I've heard anyone come to doing their version of Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings score. Like this is the kind of scoring we just full stop do not get in movies anymore. Doesn't exist. Hollywood does not, you know, it sounds like the scores for Marvel movies are made by a fucking AI. And they might be, for all we know. There's no passion to them. This is big, passionate, 
playful instrumentation from all over the world. There's also a song that plays in the second version of the credits called Blood Upon the Snow yes. that I have listened to over and over again because it absolutely rocks my fucking world. Uh, yeah, God of War Ragnarok. If you know, you know. If you don't, play God of War 2018, then play this one, and you will thank us. It's a beautiful experience that made me cry. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, here's a couple of the rewards I gave it. Um, so God of War 2018, I looked back at what I gave that one. Uh, one of the awards I gave that one was Best Boy Award, which went to Atreus. Um, and so this time I'm giving him the They Grow Up So Fast Award to Atreus, <laughs> because that's very much what this game is. Um, you know, he it just seems it's, it's like just yesterday he was our boy. Um, and now we can't call him boy anymore. Um, Man. <laughs> yes, yes. He never does that, but that would be... If they make a sequel, it'll have to be Kratos comes and says, Man. And it'll be very awkward. <laughs> yeah, and it just... He sounds like a like college bro, uh, basically. It's like, come on, man. Let's go solve these puzzles. <laughs> um, uh, but then some of my other awards I give it. Um, I also give this... This is the most niche award, but for whatever reason, it just popped into my mind when I was thinking, down about, thinking about this game. As I was thinking about, like, one of the things that are remarkable about this game. It's like, one of this, like, as you're saying, Christopher Judge and his performance and, like, the way it's captured in the 3D model. And when I was thinking about that, for whatever reason, my mind immediately went to, I gotta give this game the most luscious of beards award, which goes to Kratos' <laughs> beard. Because it's fucking, it is the best beard that video games have seen to date. Um, and, like, Kratos' whole character model is just one of, if not the best character models we have ever seen in a video game. It is just incredible. But in particular, that beard, which I think beards are, like, particularly that kind of, like, longer beard that he's got are really hard. Like, normal hair is also for video games to do well um, in that realistic style. And they just nail it and it's just a fucking great beard and just seeing it sway in the in the winter wind um it's phenomenal um and then the last and i think in many ways for me the most important award i give it is the dante presents the devil may cry recognition for coolest fucking weapon award which goes to the drop near <laughs> spear which is so yes. cool it is the most devil may cry ass shit you have ever seen in a game that's not devil may cry um, the spear that you can throw and there's you have an infinite number of them and then you can detonate them and have them explode as part of your combos and stuff. It's just like when at that midpoint of that game, when you unlock the drop near spear, it's like the whole fucking world opens up to you because it's it's, you know, the, there's such a depth to the axe and the blades of chaos that they carried over from the last game. Then throwing a third weapon in there as well um, and having it be that creative was just, from a gameplay perspective, the coolest thing in that game, and it's fucking awesome. And I think it's really hard to make a character action weapon in these days that, like, really stands out, because there's been so many over the years. Um, and, you know, God of War, they, there used to be a bunch of them. You used to get, like, four to six of those things in the old fucking games. Um, and they really kind of focused in and tried to make each one really big, in these new ones and so them just getting that spear so perfect um was a really huge part of what i loved about the combat of this game yeah it's great and i agree with all of your awards and uh i figured out what your number two is so why don't you go ahead and tell us because yeah. i feel stupid i figured it out of course it is yeah tell so, us your number two yeah my number two is genshin impact for 2022 uh like come on uh you know <laughs> what else could it be the the thing that made it is like you know 
I like I could very easily justify it being number one. Uh, but the number one game that is fucking obvious what the fuck the number one game is deserves to be a number one. So I've, I'm going to prevent Genshin Impact from getting the hat trick and taking the third game of the year award on my list in a row and just like be a little bit modest with it and just slot it here at number two. That sounds good. I, can I really quickly say it is not on my list? Um, and it was just for me, it's, it's two things. I fell off Genshin Impact near the end of this year. I loved everything I played. The daily grind just became a little too much for me. I want to get back in. I have not finished the story in um, Grass World. Sumi- what is it? Sumeru. For a second, I want to say Sumier, who is a character in an anime, I think. Anyway, Sumeru, uh, it's all really good, but I have not, like, there was so much content, it honestly overwhelmed me a little bit near the end of the year, and I need to go back in and finish it. And having not seen the full scope of what was in year three, I just, there were 10 other games that I thought sort of, like, told the story of the year for me a little better. So I'm just going to give it my personal best ongoing game award, because it is still the best ongoing game. uh, And I will just let it sit sort of outside of the top 10 as a great thing that is continuing and I continue to love. But I will let you, Sean, tell us why it's your number two uh, and, and go ahead. Well, like, just, you know, so like last year, specifically what I'm saying is that this is 2022 Genshin Impact, right? So what I'm looking at is the content that came out this year for this game. Um, And to do that, you know, let's just take a little brief walk through memory lane to talk about what does that encompass. Um, So that encompasses versions 2.4 to 3.3, which includes, and I found this very fascinating, it is 18 new characters if you include the new version of the Traveler. Jesus Christ. Which is the exact number of new characters they added in because I had I counted it last year as well for Genshin Impact 2021. So they've been like terrifyingly consistent, like upsettingly consistent about the like pace of updates. Um it's like because not I want to up- see that on the fucking iOS store where it has like the critics like questions. It's like upsettingly consistent. Genshin Impact year three. Yeah. In, in, you know, like, they're shutting down Marvel's Avengers in, like, a few months or fucking whatever. Yes. Um, and Genshin Impact, like, somehow is so on the money that it has released the exact same number of characters two years in a row. Um, and it's 18 <laughs> characters, which is a fucking lot. Um, so that's 18 characters. Uh, the 2.4 update, which is one of the best updates in the game. So this is the first thing they added for this year, Jonathan. That was the Shunha and Yunjin update with, like, the Chinese opera... And all of that stuff, um, and the Lantern Rite Festival, um, the last year's Lantern Rite Festival, like that was the first fucking thing that happened in Genshin Impact this year, and that's like one of my favorite updates they've done. That Lantern Rite Festival event is amazing; it's one of the best events they've done. Um, and that Yunjin, like that whole story where you fight the um, sea god that was the wife of the god that was in the Liwei fight, and you drop or didn't you have like the new Jade Palace or whatever. Um, all of that is just fucking amazing. So that was the first thing they added. Some of the other major things, Enkonomia. All the Enkonomia stuff was this year. Um, Jesus. Yeah, like the Yaimiko update, all that was this year. The Raiden Shogun story mission number two, that was this year. Um, they added in the Chasm and all the stories around that, like the show story in Yelon in the Chasm, which is one of my favorite updates they've done where you're like kind of stuck in that loop or whatever and you have to try to escape. Um, so all of that stuff was this year. Um, and that's like kind of blew my mind when I looked at it. Cause it's like, you know, it feels like a fucking long time ago, which I guess technically it was, it was a year ago. Um, but then obviously like the big thing this year in Genshin Impact is everything 3.0 on. That's when they added in Sumeru. 
Um, that's when they added in the Dendro element, which is the first new element they've added into the game, which completely blew up in the entire like combat sandbox, particularly for uh, Electro and Hydro characters. Their whole role in the game is just different. Um, and and there's a bunch of old characters like Keiching and Toma who like have a whole new life in this game now because of Dendro, which is fucking amazing. Um, and then they added in all the stuff with Sumeru. So there's all the new exploration mechanics, um, all the new quest lines, all of the new characters, you know, like Tinadi, Kole, Dori, Seno, Nilo, Candace, Nahida, Layla, the Wanderer, and Fardizan, the Wanderer being Scaramouche. Um, those are all the characters they've added since 3.0, um, which is a fucking terrifying number of characters. Um, and it's just like... I think I said last year when I talked about Genshin Impact being my number one of the game last year, that the thing it would have to do this year in 2022 to like be able to rank on the list again is that every year it's harder for Genshin Impact to make it onto the list because the bar it has to hit is higher than what it hit last time, right? It's kind of like why Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 on my list is only a number nine. It's like, well, it's not that much more oppressive than the last Modern Warfare game. Um, and so Genshin Impact has to like live up to those standards. And the thing is, I think everything they've added since 3.0 is basically the best stuff in the game. I think the missions, the story missions in Sumeru are easily, in terms of the mainline missions, from Mondstadt, Liyue, and Inazuma, Sumeru has hands down the best story. I mean, you'd have to finish the Sumeru storyline and all the stuff with Nahida because it's fucking amazing um, and really powerful stuff. And actually for me, like, it's, there's a lot of synergy between that story and the story in Witch on the Holy Night that I thought about a lot when I was playing Witch on the Holy Night and like the notion of nature and the forest and magic and civilization and like science, and the academy and the intersection of all these elements of like civilization, nature and where magic exists in that world. Um, and here specifically, it's about dreams and memories as well um, is really evocative and very powerful. Um, as well as, you know, again, having all the gameplay mechanics. They added in a whole fucking trading card game, um, which I don't think you probably have not played, Jonathan, because that was the last update of the year. The Genius Invocation trading card game, or Shichisei Shokan, as it said in Japanese. I like the Japanese name more. Um, which is just a whole fucking card game. I toyed with the idea of just making that its own entry on this fucking list because <laughs> it is it is terrifyingly fully featured. Like, it's its own fucking video game. It's not a, they like implemented this like fun little side game or it's like they're just sort of dipping their toes in it's something where there's like 20 different hero characters in it like from the launch uh it's not they didn't put like oh it's like you know like hearthstone there's like five of them it's like no here's like 20 hero characters uh jesus invocation game is fucking amazing the way they translated the main game's mechanics into a turn-based card game um, is kind of genius in the way that all the characters in the card game, their abilities in that card game's rule set, which I'm not going to go into depth here because that's a lot to explain, but it reflects their roles in the main game's combat in such a way that you can take your knowledge of everything you've learned about how to play those characters in the normal action combat and use that to construct strategies in the turn-based card game. And it's kind of frightening again like there's something about Genshin Impact is so good it scares me but it's like I don't understand how they do this I don't understand how do you put out these many updates of this level of quality how do you like keep on hitting that bar and raising that bar with the writing and with the game design and the exploration and the worlds and all that stuff over and over again and then also you add an entire fucking playable turn-based card game on top of it that exists in your video game it's 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 evil or something. They've made some kind of pact with the devil somewhere to be able to make Genshin Impact as good as it is. But it's fucking amazing. It's an incredible achievement. 
Um, it has for me the, in terms of music, this is the best soundtrack of anything this year is just the Sumeru soundtrack. I think it's the best soundtrack in Genshin Impact is the Sumeru soundtrack. Um, in specific, um, I give the track of the year award goes to the song For Riddles, For Wonders, which also is just an amazing uh, title. Uh, but For Riddles, For Wonders is the Nahida theme, which is an incredible piece of music that in, you can specifically hear it at the end of the last cutscene in the main Sumeru storyline. Um, but Nahida's theme is really incredible because it's this piece of music where it has this sitar opening that's like bum ba dum bum 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 ba dum bum 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 ba da ba da bum bum. That's the song I'm talking about. It has that sitar opening, but then it transitions from that sitar opening to this incredible flute section in the middle that has this descending melody that just like rips your fucking heart out. Um, and grabs so much of the like the notion of like the dreams and this longing that exists in the dreams, particularly for, from Nahida's perspective as this person, they're this God who has been trapped like her whole life and exists only in the dreams of the people that she's trying to protect. Um, and this beautiful flute melody that they play and develop through this middle section of the song. And then the final section of the song where the sitar comes in with that opening melody again, but now in the gaps between that melody, the flute comes back and plays a counter melody it's just a masterful piece of musical writing um, that is maybe my favorite piece of music in the entire soundtrack for Genshin, which is saying a lot. Um, and then one other thing I got to give this um, is this is not this is a little bit outside of the game, but it was something I enjoyed tremendously in the world of Genshin this year. Um, I give the podcast of the year award goes to the Genshin Radio um, show, which is the Japanese YouTube Genshin YouTube channel has a podcast that's hosted by Koga Aoi, who's the voice of Paimon, uh, Horei Shun, who's the male voice of the Traveler, um, and then uh, Tomaki Maino, who is the voice of Jung Lee, as well as a rotating cast of guests that are usually other voice actors. Usually it's like the new voice actor that's coming on in the new update or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's such a good, super chill podcast. That's also kind of like a video podcast where they will like watch the trailers and comment over the trailers. Um, and stuff like that. And it's a really fun way to kind of stay in the like community of Genshin and keep up with the updates and, and stuff like that with these voice actors on the game that love the game so much. It's the thing about Genshin in particular is that it's so popular, especially in China and Japan, where it's like everybody fucking loves this game so much. So all the guests they could to come on, they're not just like promoting the game. Um, it's like they're just like way into the game and just want to talk about, oh, I've like... I beat this mission or I got this like awesome artifact build on this character and you get some like really in-depth very detailed talk from some of the voice actors working on the game about their character builds and stuff like that um and for me that's like the thing with Genshin is it's just like since that game came out it has just become this kind of steady part of my life that I really enjoy of just being able to spend a little bit of time every day playing the game and then every once in a while getting in and like getting those bigger updates and spending some more time with it but it's this sort of like background radiation of my life for the past few years has been having this kind of community in this game and something to come back to over and over again. Um, and so the ultimate award I give it um, is this is the one game to rule them all award. That's what this game is to me. It's like, it's it's the game. This is the game. Um, and it's, I, I have played this game, at least booted it up every day of this year. Um, and I tend to always do the dailies, which, you know, it's like a 10, 15 minute thing or something most days, but it's just a little bit of just getting in there, playing around with it, listening to a podcast, 
um, and relaxing after a day of work. And Genshin has consistently been that and consistently like held this bar of like increasing quality to maintain my interest throughout that whole period of time. So it would be it would be criminal for me not to put it on my list. Um, but again, the, the what the number one is going to be is so good that it deserves to be a number one in its year. But I could easily argue that Genshin Impact is actually a better video game if I had to make the argument. Well, there you go. Genshin, always going to be a perennial topic on this podcast for Sean, if not for me. And and I will try to get back into it soon. It's just there's, you know, there's a lot in the world that I can engage with. And Genshin can be demanding of one's time <laughs> for the reasons you explained, Sean, because it is horrifically uh, and maybe disturbingly prolific. But we love it. Uh, if you want to listen to a Genshin Impact themed podcast, the biggest one we did this year was episode 442 from September 2022, where we talked about the 3.0 update and had a lot of chatter there. So there you go. Sean, our number one, I'm 100% sure Wait, is the same you, thing. Did you say your number two? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, because I was curious what your number two was. <laughs> my number two is Witch on the Holy Night. Oh, right. Kind of oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's not a video game. Yeah. Okay, well, you had it on your list too, motherfucker. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, we already had that debate. If Okay, here's the thing. If you are so offended by the idea of Witch on the Holy Night being in a video game, take it off my list and put as number 10 Marvel Snap, and then everything else just goes up a rank. All okay. right? You can do that. That is the alternate version where everything is a video game. You can have that one, all right? Uh, but in this version of the list, I have Witch on the Holy Night as number two because, fuck it, I played it on a video game console, uh, and I loved it, and I considered possibly even <laughs> making it... Uh, Displace my number one, but that seemed crazy because I, I had I had the same thought, and I was like, I, yeah. "How can I do this? How can I compare could, these things?" Yeah. And, then, and then I was trying to rank it next to Vampire Survivors. I'm like, "Fuck it!" It's like, what, yeah. what maybe, am I even doing with my life? <laughs> maybe it should be number zero. Probably it shouldn't just be on the list, uh, but it is brilliant, and we're gonna do a whole episode on it. So you will hear that uh, in a few months when it airs on Japan Animation Station. But just again, I echo everything you said earlier, Sean. You know, video, visual novels are something I have not had a ton of experience with. I think this is the first full-length Japanese visual novel I've played. Depends on how you count some stuff like uh, 13 Sentinels and, and whatnot, which is visual novel-esque. Obviously, yeah. Persona is visual novel-esque. But this, this is a visual novel. This is through and through. This is just a visual novel. It's not like yes. a game with visual novel elements or influenced by yeah. visual novels. This is a visual novel. Exactly. And it sets a high bar for anything I will play in the future because it is such an impossibly good story. You know, for all of the high concept stuff in it, this is ultimately a very simple pared down story about three people, two girls and a boy in this small town at this, you know, turn of the decade in Japan around this economic downturn. Um, and it is just an incredible piece and achievement of character writing and then all brought to life with, like, this is the most beautiful game that came out this year. And I know there are games that had bigger graphical accomplishments like God of War Ragnarok. But Witch on the Holy Night, which is all, you know, drawings and illustrations, it is breathtakingly gorgeous. Every image in this game and the combination of them. And, I mean, there are scenes in this game where every single advancing of text will create something on screen, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it is insane how bespoke and and crafted and handcrafted every moment of this thing is. 
and it is a truly you know beautiful sometimes overwhelming experience the music which which you didn't mention um is also just gorgeous it's a yeah. really beautiful soundtrack very simple but very lovely uses some pieces of classical piano music as well um the the voice acting which was added for this version is brilliant and it's a it's a great great cast uh you know I it, it's an incredible production. It is something everybody should experience. I think if you have any interest in anything like this, and even if you think you don't, because I think this has so 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 much to offer, and you know, I hope uh, it does well and inspires Type Moon to to put out more of these in English, because this is also. I will say you can tell that this was done by a small team because there are more typos than I would like in the English translation. But it's a good translation. It's very readable. It's mm-hmm. very poetic in places. Um, and again, just to have an official one is something else. Uh, I, I wish they could figure out romanization of names because that's the biggest problem with this translation. Oh, you, you, <laughs> you, don't, you don't like it being Suzuki? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, but it's also inconsistent. Like sometimes it's Toko with O-K-O and sometimes it's Toko O-U-K-O. If you want to emphasize the O, it should always be O-U-K-O, but it's there's stuff like that where yeah. they've never, like, style-guided the whole thing. Um, but anyway, uh, other than that, uh, this is this is so brilliant. Just to give you an example of how good the production values are of this thing, even on Nintendo Switch, this is a full 20-gigabyte download. That's how much art is in this yeah. thing. Uh, and, like, visual novels usually would be three gigs like max or something like they're not that big and this is literally one of the biggest games i have on my nintendo switch this is bigger than fucking pokemon fire emblem what have you this is bigger than crisis core this is a big ass game uh i mean assuming that the art on the switch i would assume would be 1080p that would still be higher resolution than the original pc release of that game yes um so yeah I assume this is identical to the PS4 version. I don't think there's probably any major differences between this and and the PS4 code. Um, Because it's gorgeous. And I will say on Switch, I just love it. It's like, you know, curling up with a good book and and having it handheld just is so cool. It's the perfect platform for visual novels. And I hope we get many more because this is something special. Yeah, actually, one thing I want to say on that note I forgot to mention um, is that... So I played it on PS4 because I don't have a Switch. Um, And I've always been skittish about the idea of playing a visual novel on a console, even though I know it's very common in Japan. um, It's just I've always played it on a laptop. Like, that's always been my visual novel machine of choice. Um, And because it's got that kind of handheld kind of quality and you can move it around and play it in bed and stuff like that. And so it never made sense to me playing it on a console and on TV. I actually have to say it was very comfortable playing it that way. And I really like, like, it kind of opened that up as like, oh, it feels a bit different but it works really well. And you have like this nice, like big presentation, um, particularly when the art is so high resolution and so gorgeous, um, having it on your big screen TV. Um, and then the font is so big, um, it's actually very comfortable to read. So like, if there's anybody like me who doesn't have a Switch, but is interested in this game um, and is like me, like has never played a visual novel on console and finds the idea kind of weird, um, it actually works really well, which of course it does. Again, like there are lots of visual novels that exist that have only been released on consoles in Japan. So of course it's like a format that works well. It's actually the way the format started was in some Super Famicom games like um, the, the Witch of the, the Night of the Weasel and stuff like that. Um, that were the original visual novels were all console games. Um, so it's like, of course it would work, but I never actually played it that uh, visual novel that way. And it, it's a really cool way to play it, particularly for something like this that looks so good. Um, obviously, there's advantages of the Switch version as well. So, like, either one, 
I think and on it. Switch, you can put it on your TV, and I did yes. that. So you get both. But yes, if you only have a PS4, don't let that stop you. It's so gorgeous, you're not going to regret it. Yeah, and if you've never played a visual novel, I said this before, but I think it maybe was on one of the Japanimation Station podcasts. Like, this is a good visual novel to start with, I think, because it's a kinetic novel, so you don't have, like, the choices. You don't have to, like, worry about, do I want to go look up, like, what the right choices are to get on the route I want, or do I want to play it naturally and stuff like that? Um, like the, it's shorter. So the pacing of it is a little bit faster. It's still slow. Like it's still a visual novel. So it's got a very deliberate pace to it, but it's, you know, like Tsukihime, the game I'm playing right now is like two and a half, uh, which on the Holy Nights, right? Like the visual novels are typically very long, which on the Holy Night only having the one route means that it's like a very kind of straightforward visual novel to play. And then the productions and all that, like that's such high level I think if you've never gotten into a visual novel before, that stuff will, I think, help like kind of ease you into the rhythms of a visual novel and stuff like that. So if there are people who are listening to this that are curious about the game, have never played a visual novel, this would be an awesome visual novel to start. And then from here, you can maybe go play a translation of Fate's Day Night or Tsukihime or like venture out and play Steins Gate or Danganronpa or like any of the other like great visual novels that are out there but this is like I think a really good kind of gateway visual novel as well as just being one of the best visual novels I've ever played yes uh and you know for me it's just this is number two because Kinoko Nasu and Tight Moon stuff wound up being a big part of my 2022 because Uh of Japanimation Station I think in many ways this visual novel is the Rosetta Stone of his body of work uh I think it's the thing that kind of unlocks and ties together everything else um, it's kind of the seed from which everything else grew in its original draft. Um, and it's just, it, it was very, very special to me. And, uh, I, I love it. I love it to death. It means a lot to me. And, uh, I'm so glad to have it. It's my number two, but, uh, getting back on track, our number one is obviously Elden, Elden, it's Elden Ring. It's, it's Elden Ring. Like, it's Elden Ring. Well, it's going to be. It's, it's, I'm. I, I genuinely question your sanity if Elden Ring is not your number one game of the year. Yeah, it's one of the best games ever made. It's probably in my top ten all time. Yeah, it's a stunning genre defining masterpiece. We've done many podcasts on it. I looked back. The one where we spent the most time on it when we had both finished it is episode four twenty five from April. Uh, but we did a whole string where we just were playing this because it's a long, big, beautiful game. But yeah, Elden Ring is. As good as video games, I think, get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it dominated, like, our lives and the podcast for, like, two months or something. Um, yes. It's, yeah, it's fucking incredible. Um, like, I've, I'll just run down some of my awards that maybe, like, recognize some of the specific stuff. This is, And this one, for me, is, like, encapsulates m- much of what, like, Elden Ring is to me. I give the, the holy fucking shit moment of the year award goes to going <laughs> down the elevator. Um, where the first time you yeah. go down and realize, oh, there's an entire like sort of underground world here that runs underneath the surface map, um, that there's a lot of implications there in gameplay stuff um, and also narrative implications that that has. And I just remember that being one of those moments playing Elden Ring. And Elden Ring has a shocking number of these kinds of moments where like the whole your whole perspective on the world completely is reoriented. And you realize, oh, there are so many things I assumed about this thing, both as a piece of fiction and like story, and then also of it as a game that are not true. And there's like a lot more here than I thought. And I already thought that there was a hell of a lot here. 
Um, and this is like uh, that whole game is a repeated unveiling of those kinds of moments. And that was for me, and everyone's going to run into different ones at different points. That was for me the biggest one was early on stumbling into that one of those elevators and discovering the underground world with the ancestors and fighting the ancestral beast and all that shit. And it was like, oh my God, what is this game? Uh, because it yeah. is the, you know, it's it's the evolution of Dark Souls that everyone had been waiting for, right? Like Dark Souls 3 was like really good, but too much another one of those. And then you had obviously Bloodborne and Sekudo that were going off in a different direction um, in, in taking, you know, Sekudo's just effectively different genre of game. Um, and so then Elden Ring coming in and taking those core ideas of Dark Souls and then fusing it with the genre de jour of uh, the open world game and showing everybody's like, this is what a... F you think you know what an open world game is? Here's a fucking open world game, motherfucker. This is what it felt like from software said, and they slapped this in everyone's faces, and then we just played it for months on end, because that's what Elden Ring was. It feels like, and I said this at the time, it feels like the biggest video game ever made. Yeah. And I think if you actually like look at the landmass of the world, it's not. I think probably like Assassin's Creed Odyssey was even bigger, if you look at some of those. But it feels like the biggest game ever made because the world is not just big, but it is dense. It is impossibly dense. There is something to see or something to find or a challenge to take on every single inch of this enormous game. And there is so much depth in the mechanics, which are built off of obviously the past decade plus from Demon Souls to Dark Souls to Bloodborne and all of that. Um, and it's, it's incredibly open and it encourages you to, you know, open your build and do different things and constantly find new ways to play and equip your character. Uh, the storytelling through the environment, through, you know, contextual clues, sometimes through more traditional cutscenes is the best it's ever been in a FromSoft game. Um, you know, this is a game that that truly delivers on the promise of, I think, the entire idea of the open world genre and of video games in general to a certain degree of setting you loose in a giant in, imaginative playground that the developers have built for you and encouraging you to go make your own adventure in that world, not a prescribed adventure, not an adventure determined by, you know, a quest log that is never ending or a compass on your screen that is constantly telling you where to go or anything like that, but truly go out and, and live in the world and explore it and learn it and feel it. And, you know, I think the closest a game had gotten to that for me before now was Breath of the Wild. And I think this iterates on sort of the Breath of the Wild formula by adding, you know, more literal depth to the world in terms of caverns and underground places, obviously having a much richer combat system, really going all in on, you know, the lore with what George R. R. Martin gave to the game with this very, you know, historically grounded sense of the world. Um, you know, this is, this is, I think, the pinnacle of what games as an interactive experience in that sense can offer. Uh, and it is just such a cool thing to experience. Yeah, and, and it is, like, worth it to emphasize, like, how good the narrative experience of it is alongside the more traditional game design elements. Um, because one thing I give it also is my Undying Fealty Award, which goes to Ronnie, um, our queen, <laughs> our queen of the night. Um, because it is crazy to me that this game is both, like the most open from software game ever like obviously like by a crazy order of magnitude it's the most open and big and and um sort of non-linear version of this kind of game they have made and at the same time it's got the best storytelling and kind of the most clear storytelling they've had other than maybe in terms of clarity Sekudo is probably more clear but that game's very straightforward um but this is like 
this is a story like and you can like really follow it and you can follow the history of the family of these gods and what has happened to make the world what it is um and then you can follow the whole big long storyline with ronnie and her whole cast of supporting characters um and it's like very clear and evocative and powerful and has really incredible emotional moments and visuals like when you discover her body after she has destroyed one of the two fingers and all that kind of stuff um like it's the thing where Elden Ring kind of feels like it's cheating because the game like does it all um it is both able to be this big open non-linear super exploratory adventure game and also embed that world with such a sense rich of such a rich sense of history and narrative and also having real characters that exist in that world that you can follow and who change um through the story until you get to the end um, again, particularly if you're doing the Ronnie stuff, that to me is where like the heart of the story lies. Um, but it is the best version of like the quest thing that these Dark Souls style games have had, um, which have always been fairly obtuse, but always kind of interesting. Here, it's like they really with the Ronnie thing, I think they cracked how that kind of quest can work incredibly well um, in one of these games. Um, and, and that's a thing that I think sometimes in Elden Ring gets lost in the conversation with so much time passed, people focus so much on the world and the combat and that stuff, and that stuff's great. It's like also it nailed the storytelling. Like, um, I think this game was nominated for best story at Game Award at the Game Awards for 2022. There are a lot of people who kind of balked at that because it's like, why would Elden Ring be there? Um, it's like, does it even even have a story? And it's like, yeah, it does. It has a fucking great story. It's just told in a very non-conventional way because it's so much embedded in the kind of video game design. Yeah, it's super cool. You know, this is very similar to 2019 when Sekiro was both of our number ones with a bullet. Yes. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, FromSoft, I, I think <laughs> every time they, they make a game at this point, number one is theirs unless they fuck something up, probably. Because this is just, they, they've cracked the code for how to do all of this. And uh, I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. The last award I give it also, because this is one of the things when thinking about this game, is another memory that stands out a lot. I give it the Move Over Skyrim Award for best implementation of dragons in a video game. Because the dragons yes. in Elden Ring, this is what a fucking dragon should be in a video game. Um, dragons have always been, I think, kind of a thorny thing that video games have never really cracked. Skyrim did an okay-ish job at it. Um, but, oh my fucking God, the dragons. And like that first dragon fight where you're on like the lake or for me the first one I fought was on the lake and I'm with the horse and like riding past it and fucking cutting at its heels and stuff with my sword it's just like incredible and the whole game do is you have that an kind of experience do you have an award for the horse um no I did not give a specific award for the horse all right, best horse ever in a video game is the horse in Elden Ring. It can jump. It can fly. It's the most amazing horse. It, can, it is it your can best jump. friend. It can double jump. It is the horse it that can, can double jump, um, yes. which is fucking ridiculous. It's the horse that can double jump with a little cartoon ping sound effect that sounds like it's from My Little Pony. I love it. The horse in this game is maybe, honestly, the secret sauce to all of Elden uh -huh. Ring. Like, if you're wondering what is the special ingredient, it's that fucking horse. God, that horse is great. Yeah, you know, we could sit here just like throwing out awards for this thing. I know, forever. I know. Um, 
but like I, I just I think the moment I fell fully in love with Elden Ring for me was probably riding my horse around the ankles of the giants on that cliffside you go to pretty mm-hmm. early on and like hacking at like running up hearing the like you know the galloping of the horse feeling like I'm in the ride of the Rohirrim or something and then just slashing my sword at the ankles of the big giant and turning around to do it again as it swings at me and I dodge it I just it was one of those things where it's like I could never have imagined a game would do something like this where it feels like yeah. this is something from my from my imagination from my dreams not something that I would see in a game god what a fucking game and this was a good year for games there was a lot of great stuff and Elden Ring just uh, it is the undisputed king yeah I mean it is it is a game that like you don't get a lot of games like this like it's only every like what's every like 10 years maybe you get this kind of game that's just like it blows the whole world open for you. I think for many people, like Demon Souls and or Dark Souls was also that. Um, yes. That long time ago at, in the 360 generation, it's like... And given what influence Dark Souls and Demon Souls have had on gaming in the decades since, one can only imagine what games will look like in another decade with Elden Ring on the brain. Exactly, yeah. So... Yeah. It was the easiest number one ever. It's like it's just like, yep, here you go, here you go, Elden Ring. It's it's you. Yep. It's like I knew it about ten minutes after starting playing your game. It's like, yep, fuck it. It's like game of the year's done. It's like, do we even need yes. to make an, a list? It's like it's just this one. It's, here you go. All right. Well, do you want to quickly recap our lists? Yes. Let's do that. Um, My number ten was Call of Duty: Modern Warfare Two. Here we go again. My number ten was Sonic Frontiers. My number nine was Power Wash Simulator. My number nine was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Here we go again. My number eight, Kirby and the Forgotten Land. My number eight, Hollow Cure. My number seven, Triangle Strategy. My number seven, Horizon Forbidden West. My number six, Pokemon Violet. My number six, Sifu. My number five, Vampire Survivors. My number five, Mahotsukai no Yoru or Witch on the Holy Night. My number four, Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII Reunion. My number four, Vampire Survivors. My number three, God of War, Ragnarok. And my number three, also, God of War, Ragnarok. My number two, Mahotsukai no Yoru, Witch on the Holy Night. My number two, Genshin Impact 2022. My number one, Elden Ring. And my number one is also, The Elden Ring. All right. Well, thank you all for being here for our top 10. Next week, uh, I haven't said this to you, Sean, but I already drew up the plans for it. We're going to do our 2023 preview episode. We like to do these from time to time. And I realized it's necessary this year because 2023 is stacked yeah. uh, because all the games got delayed out of 2022. So I have a, a outline for that. It'll probably be a shorter episode, but we will do that for you guys next week. Until then, you know, go play some video games. They're pretty good. I'm excited to talk about all the games that got delayed out of 2022 into 2023 that are going to be delayed out of 2023 also into 2024.